What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 39 of the Noise Podcast, brought to you by Noise.co.uk. I am your host, slash your boy, Chris Pierre, and as ever, I'm joined by my very good friend and Mr. Cynical himself, Samuel Lewis. Mate, how are you? Couldn't be better, mate. Well, looking forward to this. It's so good that we basically cannot do our usual spear of shit talk because there's so much for us to go through. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably for everyone's benefit, though, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, I would agree, actually. Uh, we're a fortnightly rock and metal podcast, as I mentioned to you, sponsored by the beautiful folks at Stereo Brain Records, who are an emerging label in Cardiff. I'm going to leave their website link in the YouTube description so you can check out them and their bands. If you could like the video and subscribe to us on YouTube, that'd be great. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or any other uh, streaming service that you use, listen to podcasts on, if you could subscribe to us on there, that would be wicked. On the last episode, our greatest metal album of all time, this continued with Judas Priest, British Steel. We also reviewed new albums from Currents, The Way It Ends, and the new self-titled Ghost Inside record. We had my Chris Meats interview with Trevor from The Black Dahlia Murder as well. Really appreciated that one. They've had some good feedback about that interview as well, so I'm glad everyone enjoyed it. Uh, this week, my God, unbelievably stacked episode. We've got number 13 in Sam's greatest metal album of all time. We're going to review new albums from Amure, Make Them Suffer and Lamb of God. And my Chris Meets this week is with Benjamin Mainwaring, who is the bassist in The Nightmares, who are on Stereo Brain Records. And I have played, I played their song a couple of episodes ago as well. So be sure to stick around at the end of the show to listen out for that. Before we get fully underway, Sam, I wanted to bring up something to you that has been permeating discussion in the alternative music scene and actually broader worldwide if we look at the larger issue at hand. For anyone who follows The Ghost Inside or follows any kind of alternative music outlet, you probably would have seen the controversy over the last couple of weeks between their bassist Jim Riley and a drummer called Rashad Jackson from, a, I believe he drums in a band called Bryce Hall, who I'm not very familiar with. Now, me and, me and you, Sam, we discussed whether we were going to talk about this on, on the podcast. And my reservations about bringing up this issue was mainly because obviously it's to do with racism. My thoughts were, who cares about what two white dudes think about racism? When has it ever like affected me? In the sense of, I am a straight white male. I have never feel, I don't feel like I've ever been discriminated against because of my race, because of my gender or because of my sexuality, which puts me in an incredibly privileged position in today's world. And I personally believe that the concept of white privilege absolutely exists. And I am someone that can confirm that because like I say, I've never been discriminated against in any way, shape or form. I don't know what that's like. So who cares what I think? Because I'm not on the front lines having to deal with this discrimination, regardless of how disgraceful I find discrimination in any form. And you, you kind of understood that. And, and you, you made a really good point to me about the fact that we, we, we didn't want to do, be a podcast that tried to shy away from, from the difficult issue, did we? No, I felt that I completely understood your you view that maybe our voices aren't the the ones that should be rising um, to this issue at the, at the top or anything like that. And I, and I completely agree. I don't think anyone should listen to us more than they would listen to anybody else who seems to be historically more suited to, to, to something like this. This is this is a an idea, ideology, and a protest about the the suppressing of black lives and black voices. 
and it makes sense to hear a black life and a black voice speaking about this. So I completely understood that. But the idea of avoiding it altogether didn't sit well with me either. I felt that the noise as a as a company and us two as people have always wanted to champion libertarian rights and freedoms of expression and civil rights and this was a, a unique opportunity to talk about the conversation of this generation the important issue and the two questions that robert f kennedy sort of asked sort of stuck in my head if not you then who and if not now then when and even though we are not necessarily gonna i don't expect the noise podcast to be changing the politics of the world um at any juncture but i definitely wanted us to join the conversation and push this issue um with the respect and uh, the respect that it deserves really because silence i think is 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 almost complicit in what is going on now and i wanted just to make sure that we added ourselves to the conversation regardless of where that entailed and i think that you were 100 right there and when we're discussing it i soon realized that you know what on the grand scheme of things we are a hair follicle of the music industry if that on a good on a good episode, we'll get 150 plus listeners. But I like and for those 150 plus, thank you so much. But, and, but I like to think of those 150 people, they would listen continuously because they know that regardless of the situation, at least Chris and Sam will tell us what they really think. Yeah, and because there was an issue that directly involved not just the music industry, but literally an album that we covered on our last episode or a band, sorry, that we covered on our last episode. I, I do think it would have been wrong to shy away from this. So let, let's, let's just talk about it. The Ghost Inside, who I mentioned, uh, one of my favourite bands. Uh, I didn't know anything about this. Uh, two weeks ago, we weren't aware of this at all. Um, Ghost Inside released a new record last Friday. Um, as we record this, by the time it comes out, it'll be the Friday before last. And just as, as they're about to release this record, obviously the, pro, the Black Lives Matter protests are going on regarding the death of George Floyd, or the murder of George Floyd, I should say. To which the Ghost Inside put up a T-shirt saying 100% of the profits of this T-shirt will be donated to NAACP. To which a drummer, to, who I believe's name is Rashad Jackson. Now, I, I don't know Brace War. I've, ne- I've never been aware of Rashad Jackson at all. But he quote tweeted the picture that the Ghost Inside put and I'm going to paraphrase here, but he said, this is cute. Um, you're going to act like your bass player didn't use the N-word to describe your bus driver that one time. Which was met with silence for a while. Uh, a lot of comments on the tweet saying, come on, guys, inside, when you're going to address this, when you're going to address this, this looks terrible, which it, which it absolutely did. The bassist of the Ghost Inside is called Jim Riley, to which there was a response several hours later uh, i'm gonna read it out rashad called me out in 2015 i called him he put the screws to me i deserved it and i apologized to him he told me that wasn't good enough and he was right it's shameful and fucking embarrassing i present myself as someone who gives a shit about progressive movements and ideas and i was not living up to that because of that conversation i had to take a big fucking look in the mirror and recognize a lot of bullshit that i was selling myself 
I made too many excuses for being brought up without exposure to the black experience and I should have been better. I make a conscious effort to purge stuff about myself that still sucks when I find it and to be mindful that I'm just a passenger on someone else's ship in any movement related to black lives. I'm sorry, I know that's not enough. I'm going to keep doing the work. That might still not be enough. I'm going to do it anyway. Now, I am not in the position to say whether that um, response was enough or whether that was the kind of response that allowed anyone who's been the result of racial discrimination um, able to accept that and accept that maybe Jim has moved on, etc. I'm not in the position to say that. What happened then was it appeared then that tweets of Rashad where he was using homophobic slurs towards his friend then surfaced. And it kind of became this like back and forth between like, well, you can be homophobic in 2012, but Jim can't, you know, make a mistake in 2015 and apologize and all this stuff. And before you know it, the conversation become less about racism, more about which one's worse. And then obviously that puts it in a strange position then of, is this, what's this even about now? Is this just about which one, which one of these two people deserves to be cancelled worse? And I don't know about you, Sam, but I, I didn't think this looked good at all for either party. No, um, the, there isn't a winner in this situation in the slightest. Um, I think that regard, regardless of, of whatever stance, whether you're a member of Ghost Inside, a fan of Ghost Inside, a fan of Brace War, there's, there's, no, there's nobody that comes out of this looking well. And the response that Ghost Inside made to it, I don't think... Uh, I think opens itself up to scrutiny and questioning as well, even even in that circumstance. You know, I I think I think I agree with you that the, it seems an odd direction for the issue to take, where we're having an argument about which type of bigotry is more impactful than the other. Can we just agree they're both horrible and act yeah. accordingly? Yeah. Um. That's it. That seems to be that seems to be really really simple. Um. But yeah, I I agree with you. Before we talk about the the decisions that Ghost Inside made following. I, I agree with you. There's, there's no winners in this. There's no winners when it comes to acts of bigotry, even though the bassist has now left and this man in Brace War has been made accountable on social media. There's no winner of this situation at all. Now, I read out Jim Riley's response in full, so I'm also going to read out Rashad's response in full. He was responding to uh, when he made homophobic slurs. Um, now, Rashad's is much longer, so you're going to have to stick with me, but because I read out Jim's in full, I wanted to read out Rashad's in full as well. Uh, While calling out racist behaviours of the ghosts inside, the band and their fans brought up some homophobic statements I made years ago. The things that I said in the past are not a reflection of the person I am today. I had to unlearn some of my behaviours when it came to the language I was using, and I'm aware of how how harmful these things are. I was called out personally by friends at that time about that behavior. I was held accountable and changed my behavior as a result. Those aren't things I'd say at this point in my life, especially with the knowledge I've gained over the years, the friends I've made and the respect I have for people in the LGBTQ plus community. I'd also like to sincerely thank the people who called me in and helped me grow. 
However, my past does not invalidate how I feel about what the Ghost Inside and Jim Riley did. And it's clear that the Ghost Inside and their fans combed through my past tweets in an attempt to deflect from their racism. This situation is about call is about a white person calling a black man the N-word as if he was a slave in 2015, knowing that someone in the band had consistently used a racial slur and doing nothing about it, only to then decide it was appropriate to use the Black Lives Matter movement as a way to promote the release of their record is tasteless and inappropriate, especially in the current events. This issue should have been handled before the original matter in 2015. They should extend a helping hand to the black community and that has been destroyed recently. Black people have been dealing with the issue of racism for over 400 years. No one should ever forget that, overlook that or excuse anyone for speaking in such a way in my recent years, I've learned the need for intersectionality when it comes to the fight for liber liberation. I'm striving every day to be a better man. If my use of harmful languages have affected you, then please know you can reach out to me and we can have a conversation about accountability. I do ask for some patience when it comes to response, as this is a historic but also a painful time for me and my community. Thank you. Now, the ghost inside removed Jim Riley from the band. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, when you pick apart that statement, I can't help but escape the idea of... Jim Riley's or Rashad's? Uh, sorry, Rashad's, Rashad's. I can't help but feel like I escape the idea of... Uh, now, I don't know whether he's just worded it, you know, in the heat of the moment, etc. But don't you think it kind of sounds like he said, I I I've learned to not be homophobic, but he can't possibly learn to not use derogatory racial terms? It does. It, it does sound like that. I think, I think that that's the that's the tone that he makes. He, he says oh, you can't scroll through my history and find this, but I've scrolled through his history or recounted from his history to find this. I think. I think if we agree that they're both as bad as each other, which I think is the general consensus that bigotry in all forms is horrible, then the accountability has to be identical for both too, regardless of the methods that either either group took to find it whether the other whether it's account whether it's a personal anecdote or finding individual tweets and i think that that has to be the that has to be the bottom line there's there's no you even you know what like even if he turned around and said how i think racism is worse than homophobia and people agreed with him that doesn't that doesn't necessarily make what he said even remotely okay so it even if he wins that discussion in the moment he's still he still acted in a bigoted and horrible way and, and, and needs to be made accountable for that as well. Just because the spotlight of society is currently on um, racial segregation and the horrors that it has put on society over the last 400 years, that doesn't excuse, it doesn't excuse any other type of bigotry. And to support Black Lives Matter, I think, by extension, should be a, a support of liberal... Um, civil rights movements in all forms you know if you can't you can't be pro black lives and anti transgender rights for example or pro um black rights but anti homophobia or uh, sorry anti anti homosexual rights or anything like that that it, it doesn't make sense to me so that as far as as far as i'm concerned the tone that he took was ridiculous was 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 poorly chosen if Jim Riley had came out, look at the reverse. If Jim Riley had came out and said, um, I'm trying to get better, but he can't get better because he's a homophobe forever, then he would have been skewered on social media. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I don't know if Rashad has been, but he should have been. 
if um, because the tone that he took in an apology was was misguided. Now, I am happy to be on a podcast platform that will last for as long as the internet lasts and say, I am very pro Black Lives Matter. Um, as, a, as I'm certain you are as well. We've, had this, we've had this discussion Absolutely. several times. And me and you, it's, it's not for me and you to try and convince those who aren't uh, fans of, of Black Lives Matter to be like, well, you know, you're at, you know, this is what you should be and to shout at them about it. What we're going to do is we are going to leave research links in the description of the podcast uh, that kind of backs up our basis on why, why we are, why we have these views. I have the views, the view of Black Lives Matter because I, I'm a very liberal person and I really strongly believe in the concept of equality, that there's one, hu- there's one race and it's the human race and that colours of skin, uh, sexual identity, gender identity make absolutely no difference to the character of a human being and that we are one people. That is my personal belief and I am happy to stand at the top of the mountain and bellow it out on the megaphone for the rest of my life. But in this instance, what I think what I think is important sometimes is the concept of education here. Now, the, if I remember the timestamps on these tweets from Rashad, they're in like 2012, I think, which is eight years ago. Now, I don't know how old Rashad is, again, because I don't really know much about this person. But eight years ago, I was, I was 19. And I have got absolutely no doubt that I would have said very, very many silly, insensitive things when I was 19 because I was, I was still a teenager learning these things and I hadn't been as exposed to the concept of education on liberalism as I am now. And I think, and I don't know whether you all agree with me, Sam, so I don't think I've ever actually put this point to you. In some cases, I feel like the concept of education would actually benefit us much more than the idea of ruining someone's career. In some scenarios, uh, for example, um, Kevin Hart was removed from hosting the the Oscars, I believe, for some kind of for homophobic comments that he that that he made several years prior. But that hasn't that hasn't removed homophobia from the issue, has it? Do you know Do you know what I mean? And in, in instead. In some cases, I feel like it'd be more beneficial to educate in the sense of, right, okay, when I was much younger, I did some I did some very silly things and they were absolutely wrong because of A to Z reasons. Instead of, this guy made an insensitive, offensive comment this many years ago and now he must no longer be associated with us. He can't possibly learn from it. Now, if the ghost inside upon discussion, we're like, okay, Jimmy's racist. Then yes, let's, let's keep him away from music for the rest of eternity. If if he's a racist person, then let's keep him away. And the same thing with Rashad as well. If if he's homophobic, then he doesn't deserve any kind of platform that he could possibly spread that to, or even have that view on at all. But if, we can make mistakes and learn from it. Then I feel like that is more educationally beneficial. And Jason Butler, the uh, Fever 333 uh, vocalist was saying this as well on a recent show. And he's one of the most intelligent minds I've ever seen talk about music. And he, he also questioned the concept of whether cancel culture actually helps 
the issue at hand. I believe that sometimes, not every time, sometimes cancel culture is the only thing, is the only way we can go forward. But I believe that sometimes cancel culture doesn't actually solve anything. What do you think? I think I agree with some of the points that you make, but I disagree with some others. I think I agree with your overarching premise that education long-term is the way to battle bigotry for the next millennia. And if we are to battle bigotry in all its forms, then we have to take an educational path to do that. Um, and a governmental path to do that. Um, slavery needs to be taught in schools in a wider way. Yeah. Um, Colonial Britain needs people. to be taught in schools as well. Absolutely. And we, we need to stop painting our need to stop painting our country as a Lancelot type glorified figure of the hero of two world wars. When in actuality, um, you could argue that, well, it's, it's maths over the course of human history. The British empire is responsible for more deaths than the Nazi um, movements from 1939 to 1945. Just no one mentions it in, in British education. However, on this issue specifically, um, Jim Riley made those comments when he was 33 years old. He's 38 now. I don't think you can get through 33 years of your life and have and say that at 33. Like, think we're 27. I wouldn't even dream of no. saying anything that that insensitive no. at 27. Let alone six years in advance from now. Um, so, in that circumstance, the decision to remove Jim Riley, I felt, was the right one because if you if you've gone through three decades of existence, including the school system, and he's like, and he spoke about, um, I've never been, I wasn't privy to the black experience. You live in America; America is the black experience. You see the news. You you go on tour. You travel around the country. That is not an excuse. You you that is not. I'm sorry. And the and the same with Rashad's homophobic comments. Um, I think the moment that you hit a certain age at like 16, 17, 18, you lose the right to talk about immaturity when it comes to this, because I'm a school teacher at a secondary school and you work at a secondary school too, as a head of year. If a, if a student under your care, whether it was 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, issued a racist remark or a homophobic remark, they'd be removed or suspended from school. Yeah. And that, that is a teenager. So to, to a fully fledged adult, making these comments that the, the, the sympathy has to be entirely reduced. Um, on this issue as well, my concern is I have several questions to the band in the sense that if you, if there was rumours of this five years ago, why weren't they followed up? Yeah, um, that, is, that is a massive question to be asked. If it, you, you kicked the, the guy out there because it came to the fore, but are you, tell, are you telling me you've toured around the world with a guy who said this and there was no other indication that he was capable of these sort of remarks, not even a single drunken comment or joke, where you thought, hold on a minute, maybe Jim's not all there. Um, and that, 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 that brings up questioning to me because it feels like, no, I don't know this to be true, this is just a feeling of mine. It feels like a PR move. It feels like we wouldn't have sacked Jim Riley unless, if, if this quote tweet hadn't have made... It had been happened, hadn't happened. Would Jim Riley still be in Ghost Inside? Yes, he would, because it was because of this tweet that he got fired, which implies that if it wasn't for this tweet, the Ghost Inside would not have sacked their potentially racist bassist, who'd been potentially racist for the last five years. And I don't think that's good enough. I think the decision to get rid of him was the right one. If this, obviously, this statement after investigation was proved to be true, but I also think this investigation should have happened three years ago. And if a 33-year-old man makes racist remarks, he would be arrested in this country, in the UK, inciting racial hatred is a crime. Um, so 
to remove him from the band was the right decision, but to wait five years after investigating it, after someone pointed out on Twitter, and then the dilution that happened afterwards is not a good look for the ghost inside, especially after the band, um, from a PR perspective, had such a wave of good good vibes because of the whole yeah. bus crash thing and their, their yeah. retribution. That's all vanished now. Uh, and that's 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 a sh- that's a shameful and 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 um and an inappropriate inappropriate well not not inappropriate but it's a shameful and a, and a sad thing for the band to never be associated with that at what should be a rising and very positive moment for them. I agree with you though that on the broader perspective, um, continually um, removing people that make insensitive comments will not change the issue. All it will seek to do is de- create a greater divide between the people that believe one thing and the people that believe another. Now, despite the fact that I believe the bigotry is wrong in all its forms, I can also understand, as you can, that the removal of every single person, the cancel culture, does at times get to a point where it is seen as knee-jerk and reactive. And there is there is an element of discourse and discussion and nuance and gray area in these matters um, that exists in every other one. Um, and that, that needs to be included in this one to, to make society better, but it starts with education in schools. It starts with liberal rights in our government, because if the most powerful parts of our society are not viewing people as equal, then the, insignificant parts of our society will not also we have to receive our examples clearly and solidly from our governments and from our institutions including the police across the world and without that we will not have um, equality across social media where people feel that they have the right to say the horrible and awful things that go in their head i agree that the guy for the ghost inside um Jim Riley should have been let go. I think it should have happened five years ago and the investigation should have been thorough at that time. Um, I also think that really, if Rashad Johnson's going to call for the removal of another member of a band, then he should consider his own position in the public eye as well. Um, But we are never going to handle this long-term without an educational and, and societal response that begins in education and government. Otherwise, we'll be handling these problems um, for decades to come because what what happens is, is is the same thing that happens with you know the confederate flag issue in america yeah and people from middle america in those sort of areas what happens is that these people feel like victims and that strengthens their resolve and that is not that is not that is not the situation we want to see where these people um feel that um that they could band together and that they are fighting against the system and they are vigilantes. That That is not the vibe that we want to give them. And sometimes, sometimes the quote-unquote cancel culture element of our society allows for that. And it turns what should be a positive, meaningful discussion about race with real significant outcomes into a tit-for-tat, he said, she said thing that we got with this ghost inside brace war situation which is not ideal. And as you said at the top, doesn't actually fix racism. <laughs> no one is less racist as a result of this. No. no one is more racist as a result of this. No one is more homophobic and nobody is less homophobic. So this hasn't worked. It's the, there is a proportionate response there and thereabouts, but it is not helping race in the long term. And that, and that is, as, uh, that is a problem too. 
I believe that it's never too hard, too late to educate someone. And I believe that if if we are to treat ourselves as one human race, as I believe that we should, we also need to accept within that that unfortunately humans really fuck up and they say really stupid bad things um and i think that to really to progress and really make a movement inequality we have to accept humans at face value and we have to accept that some humans will make mistakes that they eventually learn from now if if someone makes continual racist actions then fuck that guy or fuck that woman or whoever um they don't deserve any platform let's call them out um if if there's one instance that's been raised of this um where jim where jim said something disgusting that no person should ever say to any other person and jim can swear that i made a huge huge mistake i feel terrible about it i've learned i now understand this i now understand that i'm not again i'm not saying well, they shouldn't have fired him. I'm not saying they should have fired him. Fired him. I, I, I am stuck between those two as to what which one actually helps the cause more. Um, but I did want to address it. I wanted to say uh, what we what we thought about it. We're going to leave links in the description of research that you can do, papers that have been written, etc. We're going to leave uh, charity links as well if you would like to donate towards the Black Lives Matter movement. Sam, that was a difficult subject to broach, but I'm, I'm happy with the way we did that. I think it was important to discuss, and I'm glad that we took the time to talk about something that is rightly on the lips of every person pretty much across the world at the moment. And it is important that we um, lend our voices to the conversation with the view to aid um, liberal rights, education and freedom and justice for all. The day that the world is a much more equal place will be a happier day for all of us. No doubt about that. Indeed. We're going to move on, Sam. Uh, first full segment of the show. Uh, Sam, would you tell me the 13th greatest <laughs> metal album of all time? It is Machine Heads, The Blackening. What an album this is, Sam. Boy, oh boy. Absolutely. Um, so this is the highest placed album in the 21st century on this on this list, right? And I didn't think about it like that. But as I look back on the list, it was like, oh yeah, okay. So that means by extension, right? That in my opinion, this is the greatest album of the 20th, metal album of the 21st century, right? Um, and also I, I went back through the list and had a look through what would be the top five according to this list. I didn't make it this way, but this is the way I looked at it. So the top five to 10 metal albums Machine Heads, The Blackening, System of a Down's Toxicity, Linkin Park's Hybrid Theory, Slipknot's Iowa would be fourth. And I'd go all the way down, Lamb of God's Ashes to the Wake, five, two lateralis, and then we're going into Mastodon, System of a Down's Volume 3. Um, do you agree with that premise? That at the very least, those are the top four or five, but my assertion that Machine Heads is the best metal album of the 21st century? I 100% agree that Machine Heads, The Blackening, is in the conversation top two three 100 percent i would you're an iowa guy right i'm iowa and toxicity okay. so it would probably land third for me 
you you heard how passionate I spoke about toxicity by system of a down and Iowa. Do I even need to give a description? <laughs> um, no, no, you don't. No, you don't. So, so yeah, it lands third for me. But I one hundred percent. If if you said no, it's first for me. I wouldn't be arguing with you. <laughs> it's 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 not it's not like I would be like, how could you possibly pull it above toxicity? Yeah, Iowa? I, I, to- I totally understand that is personal taste. I love heavy, violent sounding music, which the blackening isn't so much, but Toxicity and Iowa uh, are more so. Now, that's not to say that blackening is not a violent album, absolutely is in some areas, but you know me, you know my taste. I'm pretty sure you're not surprised that I just said that. No, not at all. So let me make the case then um, why this is A, um, a top 15 metal album ever, which is no small claim for an album that's been. No. Who's been 13 years old? No small claim. And for me, the, the greatest metal album of the 21st century. Um, first and foremost, this is an astonishing collection of songwriting and musicianship. Um, this is as impressive a musical album from in metal uh, that I have ever heard and that has ever been written and released, in my opinion. Um, in terms of the length, the complexity of the songs, the heaviness of the the subject matter, the difficulty of the subject matter, and how it's been broached together is as successful an album ever. <laughs> this yeah. is like Master of Puppets, Master of Puppets songwriting, plus a little of toxicity social commentary, plus a little bit of Iowa's brutality all sort of melded together in, in this cocktail. And and that's why for me as an overall overarching theme, it does it does so much for me. Um just talk about the the, the, the the talk about just the musicianship in this album and some of the songs and some of the riffs. Clenching the Fist of Descent, ten and a half minutes. I remember I remember reading about the blackening about a year before it came out in Kerrang. And Rob Flynn was like super excited in this interview saying like, we've got like three 10 minute songs. This, this album's going to be like really intense. And I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, what is this going to sound like? This is Machine Head. We're not a band that were releasing sort of eight or nine, 10 minute songs really regularly at that point at all. This was a real removal in terms of their songwriting structure and a complete change up in terms of songwriting structure. Um, Rob Flynn said he was listening to a lot of like Rush and prog metal and that really influenced their style of writing moving forward. Um, but just the songs on here, uh, clenching the fist of descent is, is, is incredible. Yeah. Uh, the way that it starts, the way that it builds up, um, the, the guitar work with the, 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 when, when we did Judas Priest last week to say that Judas Priest and Machine Head are in the same genre, in the same planet, in the same universe yeah. is crazy. Like it, 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 in, in 20, 30 years to go from Judas Priest to this, this is like, if you watch like football or basketball in the 1930s and they're all just like slow, tall, lanky dudes bumping into each other. And then you look at LeBron James or Cristiano Ronaldo and you're like, how did we get from that to this? And that's what this is. This is like listening to like the musical heavy metal equivalent of a Lamborghini, just incredibly technical and beautifully put together and so intricately written. Um, There isn't a bad song on this album at all. Um, It's, it's just beautifully laced together and it, it features some of the most impressive, emotive and jaw-dropping guitar work 
I have ever heard in my life. The, the, the dual guitar solos on Clench the Fist Descent and Aesthetics of Hate are astonishing. If you listen to the, the guitar solo on Aesthetics of Hate, where the guitars fade into each other, where they're swapping licks, almost like having a conversation. And then you listen to Halo, and the way that that song is structured with the, the incredibly heavy riff, but paired with this beautiful melody that then goes into this progressive metal uh, dual guitar harmony and then back into the chorus. And the way that the, the Rob Flynn recategorizes songs and rewrites riffs and, and, and moves things around and pieces things together. This is the level of difficulty on this album is just astonishing. You could take a band and, and play them ACDC's Highway to Hell and be like, all right, go do that. And they'd come out with like 70% of Highway to Hell. You know, they'd follow the riff sequences and do that sort of thing. You could give a band the blackening and be like, go go replicate that. And it would it would take a decade um, to be able to come even close to the level of musicianship on here. This is this is the 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 top one percent of, of of musical genius here in terms of in terms of, of what has been produced on the blackening. And it, it's just a masterpiece from start to finish. Doesn't have a bad song. Ha, ha, is beautifully melodic and crushingly heavy at the same time. It is, if you're a bassist, there's great lines in here. If you're a drummer, there's great moments in here. If you're a guitarist, there's great moments in here. Rob Flynn is at his peak lyrically and vocally and as an instrument. And, and, and Rob Flynn, by the way, is one of the top five writers in heavy metal history in terms of the consistency in the songs that he's written. So this is his peak here. This is astonishing. And it was, it was the perfect blend of the time and the band and the scene. In 2007, Metalcore was it, what is its peak. You know, you had Avenged Sevenfold, Killswitch Engage, Bullet for Valentine. We're all massive, massive bands. And Machine Head combined that Metalcore popularity with the prog rock expansiveness and Rob Flynn's signature voice and, and created just a work of utter genius. And they haven't gone anywhere near it ever since. There's a lot of good albums that Machine Head have written since, but nothing like this. This is this is a Picasso painting of a metal album. I can't speak highly enough for it. This, this changed me as a listener as well. This this took me from Slipknot, System of a Down, to a different planet in terms of metal songwriting, um, in terms of what bands could be capable of. Uh, because... Since Master Puppets, I don't think I've ever heard an album so ambitious and bombastic and so successful and binds these layers of songwriting with this incredibly powerful melody as well. Um, simply put, these are eight of the greatest metal songs of the 21st century pieced together in this tapestry of, of greatness that, that Machine Head have put together. This is if this was my personal greatest metal of all time, I don't know if you could tell, but this is probably like third for me ever. I adore this album. I think it's perfect. And this is the highest that I could put it without feeling sacrilegious in terms of the legacy. If this album was released in 1987 rather than 2007, this would be top two. Uh, that's how, that's how good this is. In fact, if this was released in 1986, um, they would think that Rob Flynn and, 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 and the rest of Machine Head were like aliens that had been sort of let onto the world because there's, there's nothing like this. I, I can't speak any highly enough of this band from a, a masterpiece of musicianship and songwriting. This is second to none this century for me. What I love so much about 
what you just said is that a lot of your points basically reflect mine and we haven't even discussed this album. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, when you t- yeah, like, obviously when we've been in the same room pre-drinks that kind of thing, we've talked about how great this album is. But me and you have never actually sat down and properly dissected this album like we're doing here. And a lot of your points that you've just said have kind of like completely written mine off because they're the same. <laughs> they're the same point. Uh, one of my first things that I was writing to my notes as I was listening back to this record, and I've listened to this album so much this week. I remember listening to an interview that Rob Flynn did and he was talking about how Roadrunner like really questioned the concept of opening the record with a 10 and a half minute song. But Rob was really adamant that it sets the tone for the record. And you know, when you yeah. listen back, it absolutely does. Because as you can hear Rob like kind of like whelping behold as the acoustic guitar mm. comes in, it sends into that fucking wicked riff and you're off to the races. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the few albums that I've heard so grand in the way that it expands itself. So like each track has got so many unbelievably difficult complexion changes that you just, it's very difficult to replicate that. And I remember me and you having a conversation when you said that you felt like through the ashes of empires was like a precursor to this album and listening, yeah. back, listening back again this week, you just still stand by that. Oh, absolutely. When you listen to Imperium, you can hear clenching the fist of descent a couple of years beforehand, the way that it slowly builds up into the fast-paced riff. It sounds like they're trying stuff out, and the blackening is definitely the completion of that methodology. I think my favourite part of the record is the opening to Never Lay They Down, when, like, uh, Demel's playing that, like, daint, piercing opening riff, and when the full song kicks in... Flynn's matching the riff, but plays it like high up the neck. Oh, mate, it's so sick. And he repeats in the mm-hmm. chorus as well. You know, it's the way they, like, fix this trickery into the, the whole album is absolutely amazing. I, I don't think that uh, Rob Flynn gets enough credit for his vocals and range on this record. Like, if you can, specifically his, his vocal work on the chorus of Now I Lay Thee Down, like, as he screamed, as he screams, as, as it's um, singing Dream Over, Dream No More. Like, uh, it's amazing how far he came on as a vocalist. Because if you listen to Bite the Bullet on Through the Ashes mm-hmm. of Empires, you could convince me that's a different vocalist, I reckon. Yeah, if you, I, if I think you that's removed, absolutely the case. If you removed all knowledge about Machine Head from me, you could play me Bite the Bullet and then say, and then play Never Lay They Down. Say, like, oh, they changed vocalist for this album. And I think you'd get me. I think I'd agree. I think I'd be all right. Um, so, yeah, it really works for him, doesn't it? Yeah. Like <laughs> Rob, I mean, Rob was, Rob Flynn was never a bad vocalist, but I feel like he came on leaps and bounds between Through the Ashes of Empires and The Blackening. I, I completely agree. If you listen to Farewell to Arms, the way that he transitions from the whispering at the start, yeah. which, by the way, I think is such an underrated song on that album. Um, it's so sinister and so atmospheric and then it builds up beautifully to this thing at the end and he, he shows that he can sing, he can whisper, he can speak and he can, he can do that. He has a growl where he's not quite screaming and he's not quite singing but it's like there's a crackle to what he's saying and it's deep and it's not quite guttural and then when he does his famous like real scream and shout it's so instantly recognisable. But it, I agree with you. His range and versatility while playing some of these guitar licks, by the way, is yeah. fucking astonishing. And by the way, I've seen this band live do this several times and there's no mistakes. There's no errors. Well, we saw them together, um, didn't we? 
we, we did and what a time that was. I saw them twice on this run, on the blackening run, um, because it was one of the great shames that they had to, I think they had to cancel a tour and they never actually did a headline tour in the UK supporting the blacken, uh, blackening, which is one of the great sadnesses of my life, really, uh, that I never saw them in doing a full album of this. But I saw them supporting Metallica in 2008 and I saw them supporting Slipknot in the same year. And they had like an hour and played like eight songs. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I remember them finishing with Halo and going straight into Davidian. And they played the lot both times. And it's just extraordinary. There was a band that were truly at the peak of their powers um, here in terms of the musicianship. And I, I agree with you, the, the vocal performance here from Rob Flynn and the lead guitar work. I can't speak to enough about this, how I heard Bullet Pop Valentine and Killswitz Engage and even Avenged Sevenfold. And then I heard this and it was like, oh, oh, that, that felt, everything else felt mediocre by comparison. Demel is amazing on this. Yeah, it's it, 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 astonishing. Like I listened to, I remember listening to Halo on Christmas Day, 2007. It was like a Christmas present. And my dad was like, we've got these massive speakers and I bought these new headphones as well with this album. And he's like, Put one of the put one of the albums in, and I I, I picked Machine Heads because I thought this is this is going to be good, and it just changed, changed my life. <laughs> Honestly, like I can't even I can't even express to you how hearing Halo through like great earphones on my own on Christmas Day, like half two in the afternoon, changed everything about what I wanted to listen to. From that point, I I'll just listen to that album constantly. Uh, it was just astonishing what this band proved you could be capable of while 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 performing some of these songs i, I agree with you like now i lay the down but also like beautiful morning uh fell to arms clench of the fist descent uh wolves i do every song is has at least several moments that are worthy of, of just utter genius and for me a budding musician at the time i've been playing drums for about a year and a bit uh, i couldn't i couldn't play guitar at that point and, and i was just blown away um by what this what this album was, honestly, even now I listen to it and I and I've heard a lot of metal over the years, a lot of great guitarists as well, and I st- I still listen to Aesthetics of Hate, Halo, and Farewell to Arms, and I just I just shake my head because it's like, how did they write this? These yeah. th- some of these three to five minute solos where, if I said to you, Chris, when you listen to this album, you're like, all right. Um, the opening track is 11 minutes. You're like, fucking all right. Um, the, <laughs> the third track is seven. You're like, fuck me. Uh, the sixth track is nine, of which four and a half minutes of guitar solo. And you'd be like, are you sure I have to listen to this? Uh, can I not just fast forward to the good bits? And i like, they're all the good bits. To, to maintain the listener's interest to this extent um, by playing in this sort of way, this flies by even now to me. It does. It does. I find it extraordinary. And and you've had this conversation before, right? Um, where long songs aren't your thing. They're much more my thing than they are yours. Um, but I don't ever get bored d- during this. This is like amazing. This is like watching a film. Do you know what I mean? Like a tapestry. I, I, I find it extraordinary. It, 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 listen to these some of the guitar solos. It's like they're telling a story almost. Uh, I find them compelling to listen to and, and the way that they feed off each other and the way that it's mixed with some of the guitar coming out of one speaker and some of the guitar coming out of the other and the way that they, it's, it's a work of art, you know, I, I, it's astonishing. 
do you think it's hard to say which bands this album influenced because of its complexity? It's kind of like an anomaly in that regard, isn't it? A little bit. I, th- I think that I think I think that if you're um, if you're a metal band and you're like my age, you were growing up listening to this album 100%. I, I remember. I couldn't. I couldn't pinpoint a band later and say, "Well, that's because of the blacken, blackening." I couldn't do that. Um, but I distinctly remember um, living in a pre-machine head world and a post-machine head world um, because machine head kind of disappeared. So they were really popular in the '90s, and they had a lull in the early 2000s. They had a significant portion of fans, but um, not to the popularity of the blackening, and they brought it all back i remember this album coming out and suddenly seeing the t-shirts in hmv like the album cover and seeing people walking around and and and, and buying the machine fucking head t-shirts and and following them around and i remember seeing them support slipknot and it felt like there were just as many machine head fans and there were slipknot fans there like people were coming and i know it sounds extraordinary because it was slipknot's first show in the uk since uh, for like four years um, but it did feel that people were seeing Machine Head and Slipknot, not just Slipknot featuring Machine Head. It felt like a combination of the two. And and that was entirely due to this this album. I think if I was trying to get somebody into heavy metal, I'd start off with Sabbath and Metallica to set the scene. And then I'd give them the blackening. And then I'd give them something a little bit more punchier and modern. I might give them like... Bring Me the Horizon or While She Sleeps. There's like architects, the archetype of modern metal that's happening in 2020. But if I was picking five albums, the blackening would just be like, if you want to pick up guitar, listen to this album. This is like, this is our generation's Pantera's of organ displays power. I feel like this in terms of the guitar work and the power and stuff. And the influence that it had is, is more the idea that not specific bands copy Machine Head as a blueprint necessarily, but the idea that bands could be progressive and write long songs and be ambitious in their music in the 21st century um, to the extent that Machine Head were. I think that's where Machine Head opened the door for because we were going in a way where metal was becoming very poppy in the sense that it was very much about the chorus, right? So like Slipknot, Bullet for Valentine, Machine Head were, were like pop metal bands. Do you know what I mean? Like they're not, Heavy, heavy, progressive. You you wouldn't listen to Bullet for Valentine right? Right, a twelve-minute song. It's no. you know, it's Tears Down Fall is a massive chorus. End of Heartache is a massive chorus. Beast and the Harlot. They have pop elements, and I think um, Machine Head's um, songwriting decisions opened the door for a different type of metal songwriting and something that we hadn't really had since the late nineteen eighties. And I think that's that's where we go. I don't think there's a band that sounds like this but there's songwriting styles that remind me of this. Probably the best compliment I can pay this record from my perspective as someone who said I'm not massive on the so- on songs that generally go over seven, eight minutes is that I, I, I really don't mind the 10 minute songs on this record because they're all fucking wicked. Like Farewell to Arms got such a dark, depraved sense around it. I just get, I just mm. get its whole mantra just sucks me in every time I listen to it. And this album, it's just got this really innate ability of just literally hooking me in. It's an hour and 13 minutes long for, with eight songs, and it absolutely just grabs me into its grasp every single time. Quick word um, for Dave McLean, bro, uh, who I think is understated on this album at points. Like, uh, on Beautiful Morning, he could have been a bit louder in the mix and, and that kind of thing. But actually, 
he adds so much accent to that song that really lifts Rob up. And his work at the start of Farewell to Arms, even though he's quite withdrawn on it, he sits behind Flynn in such a teasing manner. He's fucking amazing, man. Um, as, a, as a drummer, just trying to describe, tell me more about Dave McLean's role in this album, because it, it must be really difficult to just slot him in, but I think he plays his role exceptionally well. I, I agree. And listen to the, the, the drum, the drum, uh, the drums at the end of Clench of the Fist of Descent, that da 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 adds it with all these fills around. Um, and then if you listen to sort of like Beautiful Morning, Clenching the Fist, uh, sorry, not Clenching the Fist, uh, Beautiful Morning, Aesthetics of Height, the way that they fired his drums in at the start and that brilliant quick drum filling between the second verse and how that goes back down to just the drums again with him just hitting the, the massive floor times. He's so powerful. He does ju- he just enough to allow the guitarist to breathe and allow the, the focus of the song to be Rob Flynn and, and all the other bits going on. But when it's his turn, he is superb. The one of my favourite sort of little bits is the drum beat on the on the verse of Now I Lay Thee Down. Because he's hitting the toms and in between it he's hitting a tambourine. They're not adding that separately. He's doing that in the midst of playing the toms, which is a two-handed job. He's not playing a standard beat with a hi-hat and a snare. He's doing the toms with this like sort of little accented tambourine sort of um, in the middle of it. And it just adds just enough to off- offset it and add this sort of swing to the song, which I think is incredible. Um, it's where he chooses to, to sit back as well. Now, listen to Farewell to Arms. He doesn't, he, I don't think he really picks up his sticks until like a minute and a half in. I don't think he even plays a drum beat until the four-minute mark. My, well, some of my favourite marks of that where he's just it starts off and, and it goes now I like um, a farewell to arms and it's the dum and then he he just does that on the on the ride symbol those 16th notes and it's just lovely and subtle and keeps the band going as a pulse and it just slowly builds up um, what the biggest compliment I'll give you is he fits beautifully into everything that's going on while also showing off he's real incredible technique um, I think this is a success, a, a, a massive success as, as a drumming performance and could only be performed by him in the sense that other drummers, like if you put Joey George on this album, he'd be so tempted to just match Rob Flynn note for note. Or Chris Adler would try and, and I love Chris Adler's drumming, we're going to talk about Chris Adler a little bit later, I'm sure, but um, the temptation for great drummers to be great drummers all the time sometimes is a little bit too much. It's like if you're in a band with Eddie Van Halen, could you really tell him to stop playing a guitar solo? No, of course not. It's fucking Eddie Van Halen, but it might not be what serves the song best. And 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 the drumming here is, it's the fact that he allows the song to breathe, and he allows himself to come to the fore at the moments where that's necessary, rather than trying to dominate the song all the time. Just to close out, mate, this really is one of them once-in-a-lifetime records, isn't it? Yeah, they never got anywhere near this. It's lightning in a bottle. 
and it was a combination of 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 the band where they were as individuals the music that Flynn was writing the the the, the chaos of the time and, and and their influences and and yeah they they've tried to and the thing is they've tried to do this again um with Unto the Locust and Bloodstone and Diamond they've tried to do this and it's there's some great songs uh, that have come after this album um but if you listen to like Sonata in C uh, C-sharp minor. Um, that's sort of like a tribute to Clint to the Fist of Descent. They're just trying to do that again. Um, but that it doesn't hit the same note. This is... Oh, man. Uh, this If you got Machine Head in the, in, in the studio 10 different times in 2007, this only happens once. This is like a... This is the best case scenario. So I, 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 I agree with you. This is, for me, the greatest metal album of the 21st century and one of the greatest metal albums of all time, without a shadow of a doubt. Going to move on to this episode's album reviews. Starting off with the new Amur record, Hindsight. It's out on the 26th of June uh, via Sharp Time Records, and it's the band's eighth album. Uh, Sam, this is the worst album we're going to review this week, isn't it? Um, I'm so glad that you started off with this way. Um, this is embarrassing at times, dude. This is so bad. I, I, um, when I first played this, I thought, oh, Sam ain't going to like this at all. Um, I've, all right, there's a four-way battle between my least favourite moments on this album. <laughs> and it's a cross between, cross between um, him appearing to be terrified of the number 203 without ever really explaining why that is. Him being Frankie um, the vocalist. Yeah, um... The actual chorus, Bad Boys for Life in Persona Non Grata. Mm. Um, the I Don't Grow Up, I Just Fuck Up, which was definitely written on a 15-year-old's arm in 2003. Um, Thundermouth, can we just call that the title Thundermouth, with his corn rip-off rap thing, where I actually, today, listened to that again and went, no! Like I'd forgotten <laughs> that it happened. And it was like, no, he's not doing this, is he? This is a conscious decision. Um, seeing God, uh, where he just lists other bands that are yeah. contemporary I'm, in I'm gonna, a weird, witty way. I'm going to read those lyrics in a second out because they are strange. Terrible. Um, and I think... I can't remember which title, which song it is. It might be the Butterflies one. There's a moment where they play that meme video where it's like that kid's going, do you want it to do it if you ever yeah. could? And, it, and that's like, you're just replacing lyrics with with this instead. It's like a weird attempt to be cool and funny. And a lot of this, a lot of this album is, Haha, I'm really pathetic. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, this is horrible. You should be ashamed of this. And also, um, it reminded me that there's got to be, outside of the band, there's got to be like four or five or six different people that heard this album. This went through a vetting process where this is like the best that they've come up with. Um, and that's not even getting to the musicality where the guitarist wrote one riff for this album and has just played it throughout the entire album. And no one said a fucking word. And they're... Their whole lyrics appear to be, just match the guitar riff at every available chance. Then in the chorus, do the same thing, but maybe scream at the end. <laughs> and that's that's the theory of the song. And it's like, do the record label want Emir to stop writing music? Because this album is how that happens. 
They're like, oh, just fuck it. Just let them do what they want. And we're probably going to talk about that article um, and the, the statement that the band, like, you know, like, we don't give a fuck what anybody thinks. No shit. This album is an album written by a band that don't care about criticism because it's dreadful. It's so, so bad. So, so bad. This is, this is fucking embarrassing at times. This is pathetic. I'm so sorry. I really liked them, you know. Their last album was decent, man. This is... This, this, if this took them longer than a month, I'd be shocked. This is the first time I've ever listened to one of their albums in full. I don't know if you remember previously, like when we, when me and you'd be together, I'd chuck on like Demons with Ryu or Shinjuku Master Lord, and I really enjoyed those tracks in small doses, monstrously heavy. And that's always what I re- related them your to just absolutely fucking monster beating, fucking mammoth of a band. And I think if you played this album to me in pure instrumental form, I'd expect to enjoy it because you are right. You know, there isn't much differentiation in terms of riff, but it's produced really heavy. And you would be, you'd be sitting there listening to the instrumental of it and thinking, right, if there's a, if there's a great vocalist on top of this, yes, the riffs are somewhat in repetition form, but it's going to sound really heavy and the vocalist is going to tear through and I'm going to feel fucking aggro as fuck listening to this. But the, the, the vocals and the lyrics are based so largely around like satire and I just, I really don't enjoy it. Um, because I've never listened to an Amur album in full before, I can't really say whether that's like a new vocal style from Frankie Palmieri or not because I've only listened to them sparingly. But unfortunately with this record, I draw so many lines between it and Attila and I don't like, Attila just, oh, not for me at all. And only on very rare occasions do cheap call-outs and comedy do it for me musically. And some of this just sounds cringe for a 30-year-old man to write. Um, there's, a, there's a line at the start of Trash Folder. It's like, hey man, heard your band and that shit's rad. Oops, I lied, it's fucking garbage. And I was like, oh, God, like this guy, I think this guy's in, yeah. they're, they're like on their eighth album. So I'm assuming this guy's like in his 30s. Like, what the fuck? They've got these kind of vapid attempts at social commentary. Just do nothing for me, man. Um, there are elements of the record which I like. I mean, Josh, Josh Travis, the, the guitarist, brutal, sounds so brutal in some, in some areas. And, um, there's an opening of Pan Dream, Pan's Dream, sorry. And it's really low tuned. It's some of the kind of um, riffs on as well on Action 52. It's got to give me like the big Tom Williams vibe from Straight From The Path in terms of like it's bouncy. But other than that, there's just, this album just does nothing for me. And it's so lacking in substance that the breakdowns hit hard and it's unbelievably heavy. But it's so devoid of purpose. It doesn't really mean anything. The breakdowns don't mean anything because they're just randomly plodded there out of thin air. Uh, yeah, and, uh, uh, you know, there is an audience for this, but it's important that we make that point. You know, there we, I, I watched Attila headline out of Vale of Maya, and while I was there for Vale of Maya, I just stuck around for Attila. And man, the crowd were into it. <laughs> the, the crowd were into it, man. There, there, is a, there is absolutely an audience for this. But that audience absolutely is not me. And I chose this album for us to review because I, I, I fully, I, I kind of expected it to be an album full of like Demons with Ryu-like tracks. I didn't expect it to sound like this. Had I have known it was going to sound like this, I wouldn't have picked this because I would have known this, this was a waste of time for us. 
because it, it's just not for they, they haven't this isn't this isn't made with, with us our kind of metal fan in mind that's all the, this is like the antithesis of what me and you enjoy about alternative music and, and just to end out these lyrics in, in i've seen god say you stick to your guns but you stray from the path not a killer like a tiller you when you feel my fucking wrath Broken teeth get not loose. <laughs> Broken teeth get not loose when I get nasty. Murder thy art when I'm sleep. When I'm stepping on a track, see nails in the coffin, ice in my veins. Pass me the crown, so fit for a king. Uh, is he calling them out? Is he trying to take a nod at them in terms of commemorating for their commemorating them for their additions to alternative music? I do not know. Uh, I'm not going to stick around long to find out either. I just thought it was strange. Not quite sure of the context behind those lyrics. Yeah, um, this album absolutely is not for us. Me and you did not like this, but it's almost like you've really got to take our opinion with a massive heaping of salt on this album because this was never going to be for us. Absolutely. No. And it's, it's almost like I, I will almost take this on the chin that I didn't do my research enough to to determine this album because if i'd have researched this properly i would not have selected this record for us because it was it's such a waste of time for us to review it but i selected it i didn't want to backtrack on it so i, I decided that we'd go ahead with the review but if you're listening to this man take our view with a green, with a pinch of salt or actually now a massive heaping of it because this was this was never ever going to be for us uh, and i fully expected an album that had a full of, a load of demons with royals and shinjuku master lords on which are two songs by Amir that I really like um, and just some other feather tracks and we talk about it. Had I known it was going to sound like this, I would not have bothered. Um, so I'll, I'll take it on the chin for my lack of research there. But yeah, man, this album is just the antithesis of what I enjoy about metal slash metalcore. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, mate. It's it's just it's heavy for the sake of heavy, isn't it? it, it but it's, it's, it's that being heavy isn't, isn't in itself a compliment. Um, your ability to just play three notes and tune your guitar downwards does not does not a metal album make. Um, there's got to be something else there, and yeah, I, I would agree. We're not the target audience, and if you are part of the target audience, then I hope you enjoy this album. I probably wouldn't enjoy your company. <laughs> um, that and that's absolutely fine. Um, I hope we keep away each other. Um, the people that listen to this album are the guys that just mosh on their own. Uh, in empty gigs and punch the air and spin around and stuff that that's what that's what the target audience for this is um and when they finish their gccs they might they might think fancy something else but until until then then when we are very different people but yeah i i think i think you may have made a, a deliberate decision about the sort of sort of band that they want to be and i completely agree with you that we were not the reviewers that we, this was intended before attended for um but it doesn't sound like they care about critical reception either based on the things that have been saying in press, which I think is probably a positive thing for them moving forward. Let's talk about something wholeheartedly better. New Make Them Suffer record, Sam, How to Survive a Funeral. It's their fourth record out on the 19th of June via Rise Records. I've always felt like Make Them Suffer are absolutely absurdly underrated. Uh, Never Bloom, their debut in 2012, is one of the best deathcore records ever written. I think I prefer it to Hate by The Artist Murder. Um, it is fucking phenomenal, that album is. And Make Them Suffer never got, have never been given the credit that they deserve for how great of a, a songwriting outfit that they've been. And 
they've always been like different as well, which I really love. Uh, you know, the way they've played with Symphony over their career has always gave them such character. You know, in 2012, bro, Deathcore was pretty much about who can drop the lowest tune breakdown. And in some areas, Deathcore is, is still like that and make them sort of have siphoned a little bit away from Deathcore. But I'm referring specifically to Neverbloom still here. And that Neverbloom wasn't that. Neverbloom wasn't this like 40 minute escapade of, bro, we're in the lowest tune and listen to this dirty breakdown. It was like this deathcore outfit that had crafted symphony into like genuine songwriting, man. If anyone is listening to this and you've never listened to Never Bloom by Mate and Suffer, my God, listen to Maelstrom. It's like a seven minute fucking beast of a track. And it's so brilliantly written. So as Mate and Suffer have made strides through their career, I've I, I followed them pretty much every step. I don't believe I can say the same for you, Sam. I think this would be your first like real digestion of them. As a full album, yeah, I think we've I think we might have reviewed them before, um, but that might have been in the same check days. Um, but yeah, this this would be a very um, a new step for me. They did a record called Worlds Worlds Apart in 2017, and they just brought on a, a new keyboardist in Booker Nile, and that record showed massive potential in terms of what they could reach to if they just perfected this concept of like the big grand chorus. And I, I fucking love this album. I think this album is so good. And it gives them everything they could possibly have been searching for in 2017. What are your immediate thoughts on how to survive a funeral? This is an impressive deathcore album in the sense that it doesn't just stick to the blueprint of what deathcore is. And this is the ambitious deathcore album that I've been hoping that would eventually arrive in a scene. Um, because... Me and you've had this conversation before where it's, we've talked about Thyati's murder in this way, where it's like, you know exactly what you're going to get, but that doesn't stop you kind of maybe yearning for something a little bit else. Yeah. And um, when you hear something like this, which is expansive and ambitious, um, it, it's, it's really refreshing and reassuring. I'll be frank. Uh, this is much better than I expected it to be because I expected it to be almost one track. And I knew that there was a keyboardist going in. So I expected that to be a little bit like uh, Night Wishy or something like that at times where oh it's God, either... I'm, gl- too... I'm glad it was not. Yeah, where it's either too much or not enough, where it's like, oh, it's just there in the background to keep the keyboardist busy, or it's like, okay, I'm, I'm listening to a song where I'm being transported to like this progressive sort of world and it's all a bit elves and goblins and things like that. You tend to only go one of two ways with keyboards in metal. Um, but this actually is really well done. And I was really surprised. Like, if you listen to Drain With Me, um, the sort of blend of the guttural stuff and the heavy stuff with this, like, angelic sort of clean style um, with the keyboardy stuff, the, the juxtaposition there, I think, is terrific. And the last time I heard it like this was Shadow of Intent. Where, yeah. it, where it was like, oh, keyboards, but it doesn't take anything away. It adds and it, it gives a different length and complexity. Um, it's deathcore with a bit of melody, but not enough to take it away from the heaviness. It's deathcore with a keyboardist, but that doesn't take it away from deathcore. It actually balances well, do you know what I mean? Where it's, it's heavy and punchy, and there are some moments here that are egregiously dirty. Yeah. Um, but, but at the same time, it's tipped its cap as well to like musical expansion and songwriting ambition. And 
I, for one, am a big fan of that. And the fact that it works is actually even a bonus. Like, if I heard this and it was like, I can see what they're trying to do, but it doesn't quite work for me, then that's, that's cool as well. But, like, these features, like, loads of shit that I'm really into, like pinch harmonics and great breakdowns and some real musicality and some real lyricism and, and some real melody. Um, this is as impressive... Like, I'm still, in terms of deathcore, I'm still going to be a shadow of intent and Thyatis murder guy, and I, I love my guitar solos and all that sort of stuff. Um, but in terms of, like, a musical composition, uh, this is really, really impressive. And um, I'm, with, I'm with you. This is a terrific album. A terrific album. Really, really, really well done. And I, I also agree with you that, I, that this band are not talked about enough. And they're a really 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 well put together group really full of vibrant songwriters and ambition they've got a great fucking name which doesn't ha- which doesn't hurt make them suffer is a top tier metal name like for real like make them suffer like think of the connotations of where that phrase might be uttered like it's just nasty and i love it <laughs> um so they've got everything everything going for them to, 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 to move forward. And I really hope that it, this does because this is just enough away from deathcore where if you're like a metalcore fan and you like architects and maybe a bit of periphery or maybe a bit of whatever and you maybe a, bit of chimera and, and like you've, you like a little bit of thy art, you, you know, you, you nod your head along to say, there's enough here, right? To like, this could be like a gateway band. Does that make sense? Absolutely. To like deathcore, Absolutely. deathcore as a whole because it, it isn't like like if you're if you're not into deathcore and you put on like Rivers of Nile, um, I'm probably not going to be into deathcore at the end. I need to be brought in. Yeah. Um, like you need to be eased in, and this could be a band that really finds a gateway for those for those sort of fans. Um, I, I think it's really really good. I, I I really really good. I think this is um, can I draw a, a comparison with a band that I know you loved and an album that you loved, but I didn't. Um, I think this is a more successful version of what Loathe did on their last album. Not in terms of the way, not in terms of the way that the actual album sounds, but in terms of the way that it's a diversion from the traditional deathcore blueprint. I think this is a more successful version of that. Does that make sense to you? Can you understand my my, my I viewpoint? I don't. I, can. I don't think. I, I'm not saying those two albums are even similar. Do you know what I mean? But in terms of like, it's deathcore, but with something else. Like it's trying to move away from the genre or be expansive of the genre. I think this is like that, but for me, a bit more successful. Dude, how brilliant are the dual vocals on this album? When when Sean and Buka are together, like on Drain With Me, they bounce off each other unbelievably well. There's so much depth to this album. Yeah. And more, more so than anything else, when Booker is given the chorus on the round, like on Bones and Erase Me, mate, it just feels like this ethereal, massive kind of coming together of all these styles. And it fits so fucking brilliantly. And for me, it's amazing to listen to an album. It's really interesting. Sometimes deathcore albums, they're really great and heavy. But even, yeah. even, even me, as like a massive deathcore fan, Fucking hell, they're really, really similar. And it's really hard to, to break them apart sometimes. But this is a genuinely refreshing, interesting listen. And what I also love as well, 
is that at the moment we've kind of made this sound like it's make them suffer doing a hard a hard verse then a nice chorus then a hard verse nice chorus oh no bro, yeah, yeah yeah bro um fucking fake your own death and the title track are two absolute fucking blasts absolute fucking 100%. teeth removers they are so you've, <laughs> you've, you've you've got something of everything and the producer's name is drew fuck uh, what a job he's done by the way uh, bringing all these elements together and making them sound as crystal as he has and the, the way some of these choruses sound fuck and i wanted to make special mention for a track called the attendant right at the end of the album i think it's the second to last yeah, song man. um that that might them suffer have never done anything like that before ever R- incredibly eerie jaw-dropping like personification of a medical facility mate what a beautiful chorus amazingly written yeah I, I completely agree and that that's 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 what I'm talking that's what I'm talking about where where it's it's an expanse from the genre but it works it comes off and there's a lovely juxtaposition here of some beauty and some brutality and let me tell you me and you have, have been doing this podcast long enough is finding the perfect balance between heavy and melodic the most difficult skill in metal yeah I yeah. I think I think it is that tightrope is razor thin um, to be able to, to to find a balance where someone like me doesn't think it's too cheesy or and someone like you doesn't think it's too heavy and repetitive, right? And finding that middle point is so difficult. But at times here, and the attendance is a great example of that, at times here it really, really works. Just to close out, for me, this is their culmination record. Uh, they've been unbelievably, ridiculously angrily for me underrated for a long time I, I think this might be able to change things for them um if you're a current make them suffer fan you'll listen to this record and you will be enamored at how far they've come in terms of putting this structure together and if you're a new fan i think you'll immediately get hooked in just like you have on how brave it sounds compared to most metal bands that you will listen to at the mini uh this is a really really great record it gives you everything and then some it's heavy, melodic, interesting, produced excellently. Don't really know what else you could want from a Deathcore record, to be honest. Completely agree. Let's close out the show, Sam, before my interview with Benjamin from The Nightmares. And what a way to close out, bro. Holy shit. We're talking about a brand new Lamb of God album, self-titled, out on the 19th of June via Nuclear Blast. Um, it's the band's eighth record. One of our favourite bands, I am feel comfortable saying. Oh, oh, no doubt about it. Top 10 for me and have been for the last decade. Uh, similar for myself. Uh, I, I, when we talk about Lamb of God, sometimes I feel like people forget the, this kind of like nuanced idea. I think their transition from New American Gospel, which, let's be honest, Sam, they're an extreme metal band on New American Gospel. Randy yeah, and Blythe, the same in that, absolutely. Yeah, and, and as Palaces Burn. Randy Blythe is literally unintelligible on the album. Like, if you listen, with obviously read the lyrics. <laughs> yeah. Read, read, read the lyrics, and obviously it's very intelligent, put, uh, very cleverly put together. But if you listen, it, it, you cannot hear a word you say. Like, me and you had that joke, of, like, when Black Label's playing, and we're like, hey, you are. You can't, you can't say the way you say. Now, Black Label is a fucking brilliant song, and I love it. But my point is, in that period from 2000 to, like, 2003, they're an extreme metal band. 
and they, they transitioned into the face of the new wave of American heavy metal without actually sacrificing any real form of the heaviness. Do you agree? No, I, I completely do. They, they took on um, this bluesy element from like Ashes of the Wake onwards um, that they've, and, 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 and then Wrath and all that sort of stuff uh, to the way that they've added just a different level Onto, onto their music. And, and I agree with you. They haven't sacrificed any of the brutality at all. Um, but instead of added different shades to who they are as a band, I would, I would agree with that assessment entirely. Going to ask you whether you prefer this to a couple of records from the contemporaries rather, of, of recent times. Uh, Trivium's okay. uh, Catastrophist? No, so it was what the Dead Men Say it was called, sorry. Trivium's what the Dead Men Say? Oh, that's a tough one because I really enjoy Trivium's. Um... I think, hmm, fuck me. Um, maybe it's hard to say because of recent. There's, there's a gun to your head, Sam. I'm putting a gun to your head. All right, I prefer Triviums. Uh, Machine Heads, Catharsis. Oh, absolutely, I prefer this. Uh, Slayer's Repentless. I prefer this. Now, the Slayer comparison is quite apt, I feel, because yes. Slayer were once seen as the band closest to Metallica, but really wasn't close <laughs> in any way. No, it was like or Manchester or... City to Liverpool this year. That's how close it was. Yeah, like Slayer was seen, like the big four, Slayer were like second with Metallica first, but re- in terms of fan base size, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't near. There wasn't like a battle to be had there. And I do feel similar, to, similar now, I think Lamb of God are probably seen as the band that are closest to Slipknot and Avenged Sevenfold in terms of 21st century metal size, they're just on that second rung. But it's not really mm. close, is it, in terms of size? Like, Lamb of God, and oh, I fucking love Lamb of God. What an amazing band. But they wouldn't headline an arena on their own, would they? For example, me, me and you seeing them, we're meant to be seeing them in London, three days after my birthday cry, that's now been uh, cancelled. They were headlining Brixton Out to Academy. 5,000 and Lamb of God are a huge metal band. But they're not superstar sized metal band, are they? No, and, and I think the, the Slayer shoes that are left open is appropriate for, for Lamb of God to fit into because that's, I think, the role that they are well prepared for, where they're the band that are consistently great, appreciated throughout the metal industry and the scene, but not a. Lamb of God are never going to bring out a black album where they're like transitioning into like a rock and roll sort of chart topping band it's just never going to happen um, and neither was slayer so i think the comparison between those two is apt because they're they'll lamb of god when lamb of god retire in 20 years or whatever or 15 years they'll they'll be considered a legendary metal band yeah um but not a wildly successful one on the level of like metallica or even like avenged or kiss like headlining festivals or whatever some i think this is my third favorite lamb of god record uh, I think I'd go Ashes of the Wake, Sacrament, this, and then Wrath. Okay, I, I think I think it's I think it's terrific. Um, I prefer I, I as love the Palace. I prefer as the Palace is burned to this, which I know you haven't heard a great deal of. But but it's only recently is... been added to Spotify. So yeah, which is a great shame. I've listened to uh, it but... once in full. Obviously, I knew Ruby. I've listened to it once in full. Um, but I, this is I fucking love this, dude. I'm so in. I complete. I completely agree. Um, I think that this is a 
beautiful cocktail of all the things that are uniquely brilliant about Lamb of God. This is an album that could only have been written and played by Lamb of God. Um, this features this year some of my favourite guitar lines are all in this album. <laughs> oh, oh, mate, some of them. Oh my! Can God. we talk? Can we talk a little bit about Mark Morton uh, on this on this album? Um, because from the minute that Randy Blythe screams, moment, uh, screams "Wake up!" on Memento Mori, uh, Mark Morton um, sort of jumps into the album like 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 a shot of static electricity and doesn't leave until the end. Um, some of the riffs on here, um, from Memento Mori to Checkmate to um, my favourite song on the album, which I'll be interested to hear yours actually, uh, is Poison Dream. Um, oh yeah, oh mate, that's the one that... with Jamie Jaster, isn't he? Yes, it is. Jamie Jaster's um, so sick on that. Oh, <laughs> that riff, at, that riff at the start, right, is fucking incredible, right? It's fast, it's snaky. You know when you listen to it, right, and it kicked in. Did you expect a fast drum beat? Because I was expect, I was expecting a thrash song, right? Yeah, yeah. And then it kicks in, and it's like do do, and I'm like, <laughs> and I'll just. <laughs> I just, I'm absolutely buzzing that it just took me by surprise and went down this heavy, um, slow, methodical pace instead. And then to do the breakdown with Jamie Jaster in the midst of it is amazing. Um, and they do that, and they do that um, better than any band ever, I think, Lamb of God. And I'll talk about what I mean by this. Lamb of God do the tempo you're expecting and then shifting it into a tempo you can't even fathom is possible. No band does that. Where they can slide between the, the, the sort of fast-paced, blistering, dexterous guitar riffs on choruses, and then go into these like staccato verses where it's like, and it's like really fast at the same time, really slow. It's really their their mastery of tempo and shifts and transitions. It's extraordinary. No band sound like this, and I say that a lot. But, but for real, no bands sound like this. The, 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 the combination of this bluesy, heavy, and actually, when you listen to this album, you're like, that's, that's, the cl- like, that's what Malevolence do. And I can see that oh, Malevolence was almost influenced by that. Because I used to think that no bands sound like Malevolence, but now I hear Lamb of God playing like this. It's like, oh, that's the similarities there are massive almost. But some of these, some of these songs, oh my God, um, some of the riff work here um, on on Poison Dream, the the bleh at the start of Resurrection Man. Mate, oh my god, I'm so happy you picked up on that because mate, Sam Carter fucking ridden in his way into fucking Lamb of God tunes. <laughs> I was so buzzed. I was like, yes, Randy, doing the bleh. <laughs> yeah, it was so sick. Um, and and even the bits where they're like doing stuff that 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 no band can do better than them, like Lamb of God, do the quiet riff at the start for like 15 seconds and then kicking off like so after good. that so, so well like the start of um i think it's new colossal uh new colossal high oh no it's reality bath where it's like that and then it kicks into this fucking massive song again that's heavy and atmospheric and then they obviously do it at the start of checkmate where they're all laughing and giggling yeah while the in the, the side of the snare drum which i think is great um it's 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 a brilliant record and it's a return to form. Sturm and Drang was okay, but it's not this. And um, we'll talk about Chris Adler in a moment. Um, but 
I think whatever was going on between that band that has changed might have breathed a little bit of life into this band um, because I don't know what was going on and I've not really spoken about it. Um, but clearly there was a personnel issue um, and that has allowed this change, has allowed them to return back to the freedom that they've been able to to, to, to expand with because there's like a new aggression here. And it, I think it's appropriate as well. This is a self-titled record because yeah. it feels like the archetypal Lamb of God record where like it combines all of the stuff that Lamb of God have done over their career simultaneously and this is a great album to just play someone if they're like, well, what the Lamb of God sound like? Well, that sound like this, this combination of blues and guitar solos and heaviness and the breakdowns and all the instrumentation stuff and Randy's voice all culminate together. This is like a, a, a lovely compilation album. I, I really, really enjoy this. There's only one criticism I have of this album. Um, and actually it's not the one that you think I'm going to have. Um, the only criticism I have of the album, because I've, I've come to peace with the other one, um, is that I don't think that there's an iconic song on this album. There's the only. And that's a good point. Yeah, I, I, yeah. yeah there's, there, is, there, there isn't a redneck. There isn't a black label. There isn't a light arrest. Right. There's a lot of like faded line level songs, a murder level songs where they're great, but not like this. There's nothing on this. I don't think that would like end Lamb of God's set list in five years. No, there isn't a song like that. That's my only criticism. But what instead we've got is a collection of iconic moments where they're brilliant, brilliant moments. And there's, there's some riffs and some solos here that are like, that is one of the best Lamb of God riffs I've heard. That's one of the best Lamb of God moments I've heard. And that's the, the Blair and Res Resurrection Man, the faded line-esque um, riff in Poison Dream with the breakdown. Um, the introduction of Checkmate going into that riff. And the ending, where Andy Bly's just screaming, kill them all. Oh, mate, um, I, messaged, I messaged you about it today. I was like, mate, the album ends with Randy screaming, kill them all, and Mark, Mark, Mark Morton's playing the breakdown behind him. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is. I actually read it at that pace as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just that level I of excitement. I, I typed it at that pace. I made about 17 spelling mistakes. <laughs> Listen to Randy Bly, because of it. And it's like, <laughs> yes! Put it in my veins. Um, and that's, and that, that really sums up the brutality of the album as well. Um, and it just does, it just does so much for me, um, in terms of the guitar work here. Um, it's just wonderful. Mark Morton is underrated as a, as a metal guitarist. Um, but he is the, one of the most unique and talented, um, metal guitarists we have. And Willie Adler, oh, Willie Adler, by the way, he's fucking sick on this album. Willie Adler. He is one of the tightest rhythm guitarists in metal anyway. Shout to him as well. Cause we don't know what's happened, but if your brother leaves the band and you stay in the band, yeah. that, that can't have been easy. So good for him. And he comes out fighting on this one. And I think he's absolutely brilliant. Randy Blythe sounds 25 on this album. Um, extraordinary how he's managed to maintain his voice and, his, and the sound of his throat on this album. And yeah, um, there are, when I started this album, I was like, I'm, I'm probably going to miss Chris Adler on this because Art Cruz isn't the same type of drummer. And I did it first. And my first listen, I actually texted you that saying, that's my only criticism. But I, after the second or third listen, I don't because there are moments where Art Cruz does things that Chris Adler wouldn't. And they fit the songs really, really well. 
There are moments where Art Crew seems to nod to Chris Adler a little bit, where he does the little splash symbols and the little rides, and it's like, that's a Chris Adler film. And, and I hear that. And I don't well, know Well, Lamb of God, are his favourite band, so, which makes sense. Yeah, yes, and you can hear almost the tribute that he's paying to his predecessor, who is, without a doubt, one of the most legendary metal, metal drummers we've ever had. To the point where it's stuck in the craw for me when Mark Morton said in the interview that he's that Art Cruz is less robotic than Chris Adler when Chris Adler is easily one of the least robotic metal drummers in history um, in terms of his individuality and all that sort of stuff. Um, But hearing Art Cruz play like this is terrific. There are some moments as well where he is just terrific. He really, really is is absolutely terrific. I think it's um, New Colossal Heights with the the, the soaring chorus where he's actually just playing the drum fill instead of a normal beat. He's just really, really brilliant. So I don't miss Chris Adler to the extent that I do. I obviously miss him in general because there are certain bits where I'm like, ooh, Adler might have had a bit more fun with that. But overall, this is a brilliantly written album, brilliantly constructed. And it is so brilliant, fantastic that Lamb of God have come back now um, in this like apocalyptic world that we're living in to sound like this and to almost bring like a reassuring hug of metal um, <laughs> that, they're, that they're back and they sound like Lamb of God and that, that's, that hasn't changed and that's something I can sort of cling to. And this is a really, really superb album and a return to form for a band at this juncture of the career probably needed it. Such an important album as well to replace yeah. your, your drummer, your spokesperson. Like Chris Adler was like the most vocal member of that band and the real, the, really the, the quiet leader of that band uh, as well. If you watch any of the documentaries about the band, it's him speaking the most eloquently. He's the peacemaker. So for him to, to lose that role, to lose that figure and to release an album of this quality, I think was absolutely huge for this band. And I'm delighted that I've been able to do it. Similar to when we were talking about the blackening, this is going to be me basically echoing your sense, mate. Because I, I've loved this episode, mate. Basically, we just said this, you said this, the things that I've already thought. Maybe we're closer than just <laughs> best friends. Um, <laughs> literally, everything I love about Lamb of God has been turned to eleven and eleven on this album, apart from Chris Adler's drumming. But obviously, that's a variable that I can't possibly control. Neither can the band. He's, he's not in the band, so uh, you know I, I can't really include Chris Adler's drumming in that conversation. M- I love listening to Randy Blythe the most when I'm convinced he wants to kill me. And it's, <laughs> yeah. it sounds like he wants me dead on this album. And I fucking love it. He's got such a thickness to his growl and just overall vocal sound on this album. Oh God, it's the best. And my favorite track on the record is I, I fluctuate between gears and roots but I think I'd go Gears because the breakdown is absolutely fucking excellent. And it's angry and it's thick and it's that Southern Virginian fucking dirty metal that Lamb of God have just perfected since since they turned into this heavy metal band in 2004. Like... You, when you listen to New Colossal House and you mention this, there's the same kind of turns and turns of pace that you get on the likes like the Faded Line. And I think this album does an amazing job of like harking back to Lamb of God in 2004 and bringing them into the modern era of metal as well. Um, screaming of Hate Arise as the break then hits fucking so sick. You mentioned Willie Adler. I think him and Mark Morton are unbelievable 
on this album, specifically for me on Roots and Poison Dream, they do it for me in terms of their performance together as a as a two. Jamie Juster's feature, so fucking brilliant. Like, he never needs to release another Hate Breed record ever again for me. No, like, he's done that feature on Poison Dream and I am fucking, I am, that's all <laughs> I need from Jamie Juster never again. Um, the bled, I'm so buzzing you picked up on that bled on Resurrection, on Resurrection Man as it drops. I literally, I was a little, like, it was kind of like when uh, Captain America summoned uh, Mjolnir in Avengers. I was like, what the fuck? In the cinema, I was like, that's fucking <laughs> sick. Like, I popped out of my chair. I was like, fucking, that's amazing. Randy Boyd just did a fucking bled. That's so cool. Um, and then the drum fill as Randy comes in from Art Cruise, fucking sick. I obviously mega mega respect for Chris Adler. What an amazing drummer! The drum, one of the drummers of our lifetime. But I always put Randy and Mark as the centerpiece for what I loved about Lamb of God, and that's to take nothing away from Chris. But that's just for my personal taste. You know me; I love a scream and a dirty riff. And but obviously, with yeah. you as a drummer, you pick up on the nuances there. So obviously, I'd love it if Chris is in the band, but I don't particularly miss him. I think Art Cruz does a fucking great job specifically as i just mentioned drumford as randy comes into resurrection man um this album is so unbelievably catered for me i cannot possibly describe um, it's an <laughs> unbelievable amalgam of modern metal thrash groove and exactly what made them so revolutionary and popular in 2004 um and just to close off from me i don't think this is one of those albums where it's a best case scenario for the band for example when we were talking about hardwired by metallica we were like hey man this is probably the best kind of thing we could have realistically asked for yeah we want master of puppets part two it's not going to happen they're 55 um so we'll take this that's not the case for me here I think this is so much better than the best case scenario for Lamb of God in their 40s. I think this is fucking great. For me, it's like their third best album. I fucking love this. Um, it adds a hot, it had it adds another 10 years to the band in the sense of I now would happily hear another two Lamb of God albums. I'm not sure I would have happily heard another two Sturm and Drangs. Yeah, I think so. I also think that they've actually adapted and perfected the element of melody that they they experimented with on Sturm and Drang um, to the point where they, they recognise that it's never going to be something that they're able to do all the time, but it's certainly something they could do a little bit. Like at top of Memento Mori, when I heard Memento Mori at the, the first a minute and a half, I was like, oh no, is this going to be like one of those albums where it's like Randy um, just like singing about girls getting battered in graveyards or something like it's like some weird like nine track scary story you're yeah. gonna be like that and then like he screamed wake up and i was like oh, okay it's cool um and and i think they've recognized that we're on sturm and drang they actually went too far one way this is like lamb of god do what you're really really good at literally no one can do it better than you please just do that for 12 songs and they're like cool we'll just do that then guys and that works really nicely for me what an episode. It's almost sad to bring it to an end. Although it's not actually coming to an end. You've got my interview with Benjamin Mainwaring, Basis of the Nightmares, coming up right now. Me and Sam are going to be back in two weeks' time. Please give us a like and a subscription on YouTube if that's where you're listening or wherever you're listening. If you could drop us a five-star rating or subscribe to us there, that would be amazing. Uh, we are going to be back in two weeks' time. Don't go anywhere. On my Christmas, the Benjamin Mainwaring comes up right now. We'll see you in two weeks. We love you. Bye. So I'm now joined by Ben, Basis of the nightmares from south wales mate how are you thanks for coming on the show i'm good yeah relaxing uh kicking back with some cold ones so i'm good how are you 
I'm good, man. I appreciate your time coming. I mean, like, in the current situation, people generally have more free time <laughs> than they had before anyway. But even so, man, I've grabbed you on a, what, on a Thursday night. I'm sure you had better things to do, but let's try and keep it as interesting as possible for you, man. Awesome. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, I, whenever I do these interviews, I always like to start off by just trying to find it like as far back as we can go, really. like When's the first time that you remember listening to music and encountering it in a sense of more than just something that was on in the background? When, when's the first band or artist that you remember really sinking your teeth into? Oh, that's, um, my, my father was a huge music fan, so I always remember growing up, um, driving uh, with my dad, not myself, obviously, uh, yeah. and he'd always play the Rolling Stones. Um, so that was a, a recurring theme throughout my life for, um, with him. Um, sadly, he's no longer with us, but that was a huge thread for us, and I really believe developed my taste you know, going forward and drove me down the path of um, where I am now, you know, the, the rock music world, you know. Rolling Stones is a Rolling Stone about as classic as it can get, man. Um, of course, yeah. W- was, he wasn't all, all as cool as that. <laughs> was, was he, was that his calling, like classic rock, like um, the kind of like Judas Priest and like yeah, Kiss? Yeah, and that my, kind my, of... my father was, would he be 71 now? So, um, he was obviously from that era where it was, you know, like the Beatles, the Stones, that sort of thing. He always, he was always very um, pro with the Rolling Stones and not so much the Beatles at that point. So I had to do a bit of growing there of myself, you know, getting into the Beatles as I got older. But no, the, uh, it was always just, I think that was his band growing up. And, you know, it just passed on to me and that's where we're at now. What was your dad like, and did you become some kind of like a music enthusiast, or was it you that took the ball round in there in terms of like getting into all these different artists and bands? I definitely think that my dad was always very um, supportive of um, new music, um, well, to, to a degree, anyways. And you know, for instance, when I started growing, uh, you know, getting into my teenage years, he, I remember he for some reason bought Americana by The Offspring. Right. Um, okay. We actually bought that and we had it on the car and I just remember that's another thing that sort of just it was a stepping stone into uh, music that I you know I, as I went further down the line then and got further into punk and hardcore and metal as I got older but yeah he was he was just um, you know a good man he liked stuff like, like, like the Mike and Mechanics I don't know if you ever heard of and Mechanics my mom loves Mike and the Mechanics <laughs> yeah yeah I'm familiar <laughs> It was just, um, it's, we always had music playing in the car, and I think that's the big thing for me. It was just always that, driving, sitting in the back of the car with my parents and listening to music. It's good memories, you know? And uh, I, I just remember feeling it as more than just background noise, do you know what I mean? I, it yeah. was really resonating with me, and I remember just, I was always in love with, I used to sit in the hallway of my parents' house and like look at artwork and have my little earphones on and my, with my uh, Discman at the time. It was just a real love affair, you know, I, I loved everything about music and CDs and, you know, just the booklet and the lyrics and the artwork, everything, everything was just, the tangible aspect of it was just a, just something that really, you know, struck a chord with me, you know? It's a shame, isn't it, that like, because of the rise of streaming, like, 
artwork and like the inner workings of the production of music now are kind of lost on this generation, aren't they? Like my, my dad told me, and I've read, I've seen loads of people say this as well. Like before, you'd walk into a record store in like 1985 and you just try and find something that had cool looking artwork. Because, you know, yeah. obviously radio's not playing every single band that exists. So you'd walk into like Virgin Records or something and you just look for something. Like, oh, this artwork's cool, man. And I love metal, so I'm going to grab this. And yeah. I mean, I, I collect vinyl now. I've only started since uh, Christmas. Sure. So like now I, I kind of understand that like I love getting a vinyl that's got like a limited edition variant. Like I got uh, the Stray from the Paths Internal Atomics in yellow. And it was like one of my fucking favorite moments of my entire life. Like seeing that, I was like, fucking, like this vinyl looks wicked. And that's kind of been lost on this generation, hasn't it? Because like, because of Spotify, streaming, YouTube and that kind of thing. The concept of like cool looking artwork in your hands and something that lasts forever. That's like completely missed for most of this generation, isn't it? It's just a shame. It is. I mean, it's hard to, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful to, you know, the, the generation, the listeners, or, you know, they, they will enjoy music in a way that, they want to enjoy it, do you know what I mean? And who am I to say any differently? But I just, it's always been a big thing for me. And I think it is making a comeback. I mean, we'd always say that. I, mean, I remember when Napster first happened, do you know what I mean? And yeah. I was, I was pretty young then, but it's strange how it all went, really. And everyone was so against Lars Ulrich and, and that at the time. And in many ways, I, mean, I, I don't want to say he was right, but I think a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, the industry and, and bands and uh, definitely the, the artists uh, have probably have suffered is the right word, but, you know, it's obviously had a negative impact on artists being, make, making, being able to make a living off their art. Do you, know, do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, man. Like, I mean, look at Tool. Tool only yeah. put their discography on, on uh, streaming services last year. Um, yeah. And like, literally, if me and you were talking in 2018 and we wanted to listen to a Tool record, apart from like a one hour and 10 minute video on YouTube, we'd have to go and buy the CD. You have to really? consume, consume a Tool record, how they, how they want you to consume it. And I'm, yeah, not I'm, saying, I, I, I'm not saying like I disagree with them putting their music on uh, streaming platforms because it's 2020 and really you yeah. don't really have much of a choice. But I did kind of like the idea of, now, I'm not massive on tour, but if I did want to dive in, I have to go and consume that record how they want me to consume it and not this concept of, like, I'll chuck a song on Spotify. If I don't like it, I'll turn off. Um, and, like, oh. uh, you, make, you make a good point, man. Like, vinyl, there were more vinyl sales uh, last year and in the last few years, I think, than CDs. So maybe it is making a comeback, man, and people have, like, got an appreciation for, like, something that lasts forever as opposed to this concept of streaming something that <clears throat> if Spotify turned off their servers tomorrow, there'd be a lot of people struggling to get music, you know? Well, I've always, I just, uh, again, it's a hard thing to really uh, put into words, but I've always, I just love the tangible aspect of it. You know, I love the whole package of bands and um, art, not just bands, you know, but, um, whatever type of music you're making. Uh, I just like that having that in your hands, do you know what I mean? Being able to look at the artwork and really feel it. I, I know it sounds kind of strange, but it's almost, it's like a different appreciation, in my opinion, and that's just my opinion, that I almost feel like if I bought that CD at the time, it almost made um, a longer lasting impression or it meant more to me, do you know what I mean? And 
But then I think sometimes in this generation, or not even this generation, I do it now. I use streaming services. Yeah. So it's like, you might put something on for 10 seconds, turn it off, and that's it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's probably not the best way of consuming music. And I think that's in my opinion. You know, <laughs> you know people can do what they want. But I like to sit down and consume a, an album or a piece of work how I feel it should was intended. Do you know what I mean? And I'm not trying to sound elitist for that. Or no, no, that. that's not. Hey, dude, me and Sam say this on the podcast all the time. Yeah. Like, there, there's like, there's no better feeling for me than hearing that vinyl crack as I drop the needle down. Do you know what I mean? Like, and that's yeah. only something I've recently experienced. I cool. love, I love listening to rec- like, and obviously on vinyl, it's much harder to skip songs. So, like, it's really wicked how I put a vinyl on and I hear the the album completely in sequence and completely naturally. And I think there's that's somewhat of a lost art for a lot of people now. Like, obviously, as, as we've said, because of the rise of streaming. And I've, I've got nothing against people who use streaming sites, but mm-hmm. I, I, I would recommend to anyone to start collecting music again because for a start... <laughs> For a start, you can find some gems that are going to be worth a lot of money in a, few, in a, lot, in a, in a few years. I just think it's just something magical about uh, being able to listen to a piece of work almost the way it was intended. Do you, do yeah. you know what I mean? I think, Absolutely. We all do it. I mean, I listen to, to singles and, you know, everyone does. Do you know what I mean? I'll pop, you know, there's certain songs that I'll pop on um, my, my, you know, my, uh, my streaming device when I'm brushing my teeth, for example, and, you know, only listen to two songs. But, you know, I think there is always that, you know, that time where it's nice to sit down and listen to the whole thing. And that's something that I think that we'd like to bring back um, with our band, and, you know, in, in our little world at least, and try and make the whole thing a bit more, you know, of a collective statement. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Like Absolutely. All the aesthetics come together. So it's just, you know, if people can really delve into it, if they like us and what we're doing. Hopefully we can give them something, you know, to hold on to going forward. And that's kind of an objective for us, really. So you're in the car listening to Rolling Stones. How old are we talking here? Are we talking like primary school? Well, before that. Uh, before my that. Earliest, my earliest memories. I mean, right. Oh, God knows. Very at, young. What, at what point are we talking about you picking up an instrument? Is that secondary school? Yeah, secondary. Well, actually, no, I got a funny, I got a story about this, actually. I, when I was in primary school i come from wales as you can as you know yeah and i'm from a little valley's town called pontypool and in my little town obviously i went to school in a primary school <laughs> who didn't <laughs> and i remember you know due because uh, of my interest in music i wanted to play drums and for some reason i really wanted to play drums at the time so i had a little drum pad and i used to take it in school and practice it and I had some lessons outside of school. And I remember when, uh, one teacher, because I'm quite a, a big guy, one teacher was like, you shouldn't be playing music, you should be playing rugby. And maybe not in that nice of a way of putting it. Mm. And yeah, you know, I really, at that time, you know, you're affected by your peers. and Of course, yeah. I kind of just gave up and tried my hand at rugby. And, and I've had negative thoughts towards rugby until recently because of that. Yeah. Um, it was just something that, you know, like it was always like, as you get older, you think, you know, fuck you, man. Why, why would you say that to a little Yeah, kid? yeah, that, 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 that's <laughs> not cool, man. It's a bit, isn't it? You know, because I'm a, you know, I'm like six foot, whatever. No, I wasn't at the time, but you know, you know what I mean? You, you could tell I, I had the build 
yeah. two people like you said, do you know what I mean? So I just remember it. That, so anyway, I played to the side for a little bit. And then as I got older, uh, you know, I discovered things like Blink-182 and Offspring and thought, oh, this is kind of easy. Not easy, but, you know, I could do this. And that's when my dad came home with a little bass guitar. And then so I was about probably 14 or 15. And then started sort of teaching myself. I had a few lessons with a gentleman in Newport, who I honestly can't remember his name. And yeah, just kind of ended up playing with bands as you do, uh, jamming through school with other people. And here I am today. Never stopped. <laughs> Any specific basis that you used to look up to? Like you said, you were big on Blink-182, man. So were you like oh, yeah, following, yeah, yeah. following Mark Hoppus there? Or were you like yeah, looking yeah, at Cliff Burton? I, I, I believe me, I, I love, they are my, like one of my first, they're really like in talking about bands and sort of, um, you know, you get into and then you go down the rabbit hole. They were the, the most important to me as a, a young person. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They, uh, as the whole, the whole thing of Blink were very important to me. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, Kelly obviously was an influence, but I don't know who, who else. I, I like Sam Rivers from Limp Bizkit. <laughs> ah, wicked. It was that era, do you know what I mean? Uh, obviously, and then like all those, I like, you know, obviously I like Sid Vicious and uh, Lenny from, and stuff course, like that. Man, yeah. you, you, you sort of mature, don't you? And not mature, that's the wrong word. You, you just sort of take lots of influences in. Uh, oh, and yeah, man. I wouldn't say there's anyone in particular. I, I, you know, I, I can't think people, some people look good probably more than play well. For example, Sid Vicious. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's just... I don't know. There's no one in particular I wouldn't say I can think of. I remember, I remember, God, I mean, this must have been seven years ago or something like that. I remember reading an article that Corey Taylor wrote in, I believe it was, you know, I believe it was Rock Sound. Yeah. Uh, The Big Mouth, Mouth, that was it. Yeah. Paul Gray had only been dead for a couple, for a few years. And Corey, Corey Taylor wrote this massive expose in there about like how basis are like, really overlooked in terms of their, their stake and importance in the creative aspect and creation of, of music. And it just got me thinking, man, like, because you would look, when you look, when you think about a band and you talk about the guitar aspects, like, unfortunately, your eyes just immediately go to the lead guitar and the rhythm guitar. Just, oh, yeah, just, sure. just like it's like a natural reaction because obviously that's what you can hear most prominently in the mix nine times out of ten. But yeah. like when your dad brings down this bass guitar, was that something that you two would already had discussion about? Like you, you just fancied doing bass, or was it just the fact that your dad happened to come on with a bass guitar that made you not want to do rhythm or lead? Oh, yeah, well, basically, I think what it, what it was, I remember it vividly actually. I think uh, a group of friends, we just wanted to play music, you know, like classic little punk rock kids. And I think we just wanted to play, I jammed together, uh, play, you know, the things that we loved. And basically people just chose what they thought they could do. I can't sing. So my mate at the time was like, um, I'll sing. Then you had someone who already played guitar. And then it was basically down to me and my friend who was going to be the drummer and bassist. And we, we flipped a coin or something. <laughs> it, was literally, <laughs> it was like that. Oh, I and, love that, man. That's wicked. And then, and then I came home started talking about my interest in playing and then a couple of weeks later I this little you know it wasn't anything special cheap little bass guitar and and then I just never put it down it was just that simple really 
so how was secondary school for you in the sense of like you you'd, you're quite passionate about music you know you've got this bass guitar was it difficult for you to balance the life of oh man i really want to be in a band but also i should uh, do have a good education as a backup because a, a lot of people I've spoken to said when they're in school, that was the hardest balance to strike of, ed, yes, education is important, but holy shit, do I, I don't want a normal job. I want to be a musician. Yeah, well, definitely. Like, I mean, like, it's the dream of a lot of people, isn't it? Especially at that age, it was, you know, a driving force. And again, it's, it never really left. I, I think I'm a little bit different now, the way I think about things. But back then, it's, it's the holy grail, isn't it? I was, you know, every week I was buying Kerrang! And, um, you know, whatever else was at the time, rock sound and stuff like that. And I was just taking everything in, you know, buying um, as much music as I could, really obsessing over it, really, to a point, you know, like unhealthy amounts sometimes, <laughs> you know, posters all over my walls and stuff. And I think it was, I've always, I, in school wasn't a bad experience for me. I wasn't someone that was, um, I didn't experience any bullying or anything like that to any great extent. Um, luckily for us, for some reason, uh, my school year was quite, um, we were quite, we were a mixed bunch, but we got on well. It was quite a, you know, you always had disagreements, obviously, but yeah. what I'm trying to say is there was no, I mean, I don't know what, um, people, you know, the, the, the outcast uh, sort of misfit kids weren't really picked on to a great deal, not in my year anyway. And it was sort of just like big coming together of people. We were all right. We, everyone got on. And so like, then it was the new metal boom. Emo came along. And so, you know, it was, it was very much in the public eye at that point. Do you know what I mean? Like, Limp Bizkit were huge. Yeah. But, I mean, it was, um, it wasn't anything to be, you know, like, not that I'd be ashamed anyway, but, you know, the stuff that we were listening to, I mean, it was, uh, you know, Slipknot was obviously one of the ones that people thought, oh, Marilyn Manson. Yeah. Everyone thought it was a bit, you know, you're slightly, slightly more of a misfit if you listen to that as opposed to, like, corn. But, but yeah, I mean, that, you know, I've always, education was fine. And, um, I have moments where I didn't like it. Obviously, I didn't like, never liked maths, for example. Yeah. Um, but I've always been quite, I'm quite good at English and that sort of thing. So, I mean, I found it not easy, but it was, it was okay. It was fine. I didn't, you know, I don't, I don't want to go back necessarily, but uh, I was, I was okay with it. It was, it was something I knew I needed to do, and I was relatively happy. I had a good set of friends, and that's the most you can ask for, I guess. Once you left school, uh, w at what point did you start like playing live shows and like putting together bands with your friends or just getting yourself on any stage that would possibly have you? Or was that like immediately as soon as you graduated? Oh, it was just before that. I mean, we were, I was playing in bands in like, I think we were like 15, 14, 15. I started playing in bands and we played, in fact, my first, I can't say a band, but you know, I, well, it was a band. We played group, group of people that could play instruments. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> barely play instruments, but actually, sang, we actually sang "Damn It" by Blink One Eighty Two. Awesome. The day in school. Ah, oh, wicked. Remember, I, I, you know, like, I just remember the teachers being like, "Whatever you say, don't you have to obviously they have to listen to the song before." You yeah, play. yeah, and yeah. Say, don't say fuck. Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, "Yeah, that's fine." And then obviously, as you start singing it, it's kind of. I didn't even do it on purpose. I accidentally said it, and kids were crowd surfing. It was pretty cool, to be honest. It was That's a, wicked. Good I mean, I, I wouldn't want to hear it back. <laughs> At the time, it was it was great. It was, it's a great memory. And then, literally, straight from there, I started playing in bands, and I honestly haven't stopped. 
um, from that um, from that day. Really, we just always had bands. It's, it's such a huge part of my life. Um, but I, I, you know, I'm not a, a famous person. We don't make a living off this music, uh, but it's it drives me. It's, it's all I think about when I wake up, and it's the last thing I think about when I go to bed. So, a huge part of my life as it is for a lot of people, and I wouldn't change it for the world, really. So, so you spend these few years playing in like odds and ends bands. At what point do the nightmares show up in your yeah. life? No, quite late. late. I mean, like the nightmares is relatively new now. So I mean, it's, it's a, I don't want to disclose how long. <laughs> it's a good few years. Um, I was in other bands. Um, I'm still in another band now uh, called Disjoy. We're like a bit more of a, a punk band, um, you know, like hardcore punk, I guess. Um, but yeah, this is this the nightmares has been going now for since late 2018, I believe it was, when we started jamming. We've all been in different bands um leading up to this point. James was in our drummer was in um quite a big band called Sharks. Um they were they'd done loads of tours, they did warp tour, they'd done uh, tours of Blink. I thought, you know, they were they they were a big deal and that um ended and he moved to Newport um, to be with a friend of ours. And we just started jamming, really. We didn't think it was going to, you know, we, we had no intention for it to go very far or anything. It was just a case to get together, enjoy playing the music and see where it went. And now we find ourselves here. And it's, it's, a, it's a blessing, really. Is that, is that how the band came together? A couple of messages between old friends, let's meet up and jam, and then before you know it, you're actually writing songs. Is that how it all came together? Much. I mean, Adam, our singer, and Eleanor are a couple. They're recently married. Um, Adam has always played in bands. Me and Adam have been friends since we used to go to a place called La Pub in Newport, which is a huge place for us. It's a, like a little rock bar, I guess. It's basically where a lot of our friends met. Anyway, we we have always been friends, and he just hit me up and he was like, "Do you fancy, you know, writing stuff together?" And I agreed. And then we asked. Uh, I think Adam asked James around the same time. We got together, and yeah, that's how it began. You know, my dad loves the Pet Shop Boys, right? So yeah. the, the other day, I, I was like, "Oh, Dad, check check this band out, like." And it was obviously yourself, and it was a falling dream. And then my dad was like, "This is wicked, no way, man!" He's like, "Because you don't, you know, you don't hear a lot of like high synth pop these days. It just doesn't, you know, it's not, it's not really something that you come across often." So, like, and you've mentioned there that you know you're you you adored Blink, you loved hardcore, you're in another punk band. So, how how did you feel, or how do we land on this style of music? Good question. I mean, I, I, I think I like to think I'm quite an eclectic taste. I don't get me wrong. I love the Cure, which is obviously a huge part. Yeah, of yeah. What we do like the the Disintegration album is a huge thing for me. I love. Um, well, we all collectively love Alkaline Trio. Um, awesome. awesome. So that's another. You know, that's slightly more on the pun side, but still that macabre theme coming through. Um, you got Interpol. Um, there's tons of bands that were similar in that field, do you know what I mean? That really inspired us, the Ramones, um, Placebo, people like that. And I've always had that, I, you know, as much as I like metal, I like metal, I, I like, you know, like extreme kinds of metal, I like extreme kinds of punk, I like pop punk, I love, I love you know, you're straight up pop. There's loads of different yeah. things that I'm interested in. 
And but I've always liked, I've always been attracted to the dark side of things, I guess, or the macabre. And that's basically, you know, that common thread I think we all have. You know, you could call it goth. I mean, I don't know how correct that would be for us to, to you know, label ourselves as goth. But yeah, I think it's that common thread. We all like, you know, like dark stuff. Do you know what I mean? And it, it, and it just naturally came together like this. And it just so happens that uh, Eleanor is one of the most fantastic key players or keys players I've ever come across. Really, yeah, she's she fan- she's fantastic. She, she's she really, amazing. She really, really is. And it's uh, it's a blessing to have her. Yeah, you mentioned there, like the kind of like goth slash emo you try yeah. to stray away from, which which I, I, I think is smart. And, and I, man, I, I have like, I wouldn't say a dislike, but sometimes I just get disappointed when bands just get labelled with like the goth and the emo tags. I think that's just so lazy, man. Like, you know, there's there's so much more to bands. Some Sometimes there's not any more to bands. Sometimes they are just like straight to be my band, happy to admit it. But sometimes... I think there's a lot of more underlying of a band that just call them emo. It just feels a bit cheap. But the reason why I've mentioned that is for like your aesthetic is quite like this dark, brooding, um, kind of like arbitrary personality of like this kind of noir, unusual kind of setting. Is that like a who, who come up with that idea? I think it's a collective thought. I mean, Wait, I took over. I have no problem with. I, in fact, I'm a big fan of emo as well. I mean, I grew up as a an, an emo. You can call me an emo kid, I guess. So I mean, like, it's, I guess we have got we at least we have that idea that we want to look a certain way. I mean, I guess that's obvious, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, we we have that vision that we want to push. Um, that sort of basically, I, I I've always loved bands that are like almost like a gang. Do you know what I mean? Like, as in a collective that you can belong to, like your, the Ramones, like yeah. Blink to a degree. They all have their individual personalities. And it, and it, I've always admired that in certain bands where you can sort of feel like you belong. Do you know what I mean? Like, I guess, like, my chemical, well, my chemical grants are a perfect example. They are, yeah. That sort of thing where whether you like it or not, you can feel like you're part of something. Do you know what I mean? It's not something you just put on and go, oh, that's all right, and turn it off. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And going back to what you said about, you know, easily labeling things, I think you've got a great point because how, how many times do you read or hear reviews of not just us, but anyone? And the first thing people say is Joy Division for us. Jeremy, always. Yeah, always yeah. I mean, I'm at, in my other band I play in, we get Joy Division too. And believe me, <laughs> the nightmares and this joy do not sound the same. <laughs> it's just interesting that you said sometimes I think people, it's lazy, but I think people are like that, I think. As soon as you hear something, you just kind of go, it's what's familiar to you. So, like, you know, it's a throwaway thing, isn't it? It's like when people hear a pop and band, and it'd be quite easy for me to just go, every pop and band that I hear now, I could go, oh, and I hear Blink, Blink 182, oh, I hear Newfound Glory. Or, like, uh, you know, I hear a metal band, and you just go, oh, yeah, that's like Metallica, as everyone says. Do you know what I mean? It's, and it's yeah, not as yeah. isn't it? And, like, I just think that's lazy journalism, and I, I, I you know, I have a lot more respect for someone that, really listen to to whatever they're critiquing and we look for the nuances inside the music and have a bit more to say. Do you know what I mean? If you don't like it, you don't like it. I have no problem with that. But give the people a bit more than just go in. That sounds like Joy Division. Just because we're in black. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we I, mean... Are, I can hear that. I understand their point. 
but it's not that easy. Do you know what I mean? I don't think anything is that simple. Do you know what I mean? No, I mean, like, I mean, I, I, I pick you guys out as like as you sit between Pet Shop Boys and Creeper. Like for me personally, cool. and like, I, I think there might be some people that just don't get that at all. But I actually think that like if you break down, like especially the Fallen Dream, like I think that is like like a perfect line right down the middle for me. Yeah. But like when someone just looks at your aesthetic and immediately draws a line, I think that can be problematic in the sense of like. If certain bands like in the mid two thousands, when eight less quote unquote emo was at its booming period, sure. like so many bands would come out and they were so tied to the emo aesthetic that by the time 2010, 2011 comes around, an emo had like kind of died off. They were like, "Oh fuck, we've got nowhere to go now," because everyone everyone relates us to this emo aesthetic that no longer exists, and they were fucked. It's odd about that. I actually read a book about it the other day um, about emo and. Um... What's really odd is like none of them actually sound the same. It's, no. That's what, that's what I, get, where I think we're really getting at here is like for me, like My Chemical Romance and Census Fail, for example, do not sound the same. Or the used and uh, God knows who at the moment, but you know, like, like the, even Blink was labeled emo at one point, wasn't it? And it's like, yeah. do you know what I mean? It can be a haircut or a, or a, a style. And I think it's a lot of time, it's just, it's just people looking for the easiest route in life. And I think a lot of people do do that, don't they, unfortunately? That's just the way human beings are, uh, you know, we're inherently lazy, really, aren't we? We look for the shortcut in most things. And I think that's just what people do, unless they're really interested in it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> You're on Stereo Brain Records, who uh, sponsor the show. Uh, be amiss if I didn't mention how tremendous Luke was. Um, how did that come to be, man? Yeah, he's a, a great person, and is, but we're very, very happy to be involved with them. Um, basically, we, we I think we we emailed the song out to a few people before lockdown, and me and Adam um, had a meeting with Luke in um, in Cardiff, and we had a conversation, and we thought that we were, you know, really shared a collective, you know, a vision of where um, they wanted to go and where we wanted to go, and I just think it's a good partnership and natural for us as well just to have that next step with them uh, for this song in particular and yeah we just it was just a conversation we we thought we liked you know we had um, a similar ideals and we thought we'd go forward with it and here we are now one of the things like i think so wicked about luke is here how open he is on his music like for example like when when we were first talking about grabbing you on the show, etc. Like he told, he like he tells me it's like this pop synth band that's really interesting. Not a lot of music sounds like this. And then a couple of days ago, me and him were talking about Fort, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. a post rock instrumental band. And I think that's really cool that you guys get to be on a label that's so varied, because because you drag from so many influences. That can only help you, right? That you're on a bat, you're on a label that's got a million influences because you're a band that pulled from a million influences. Have I made that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's great. I mean, you know, like our first uh, EP is the way it is, and I think will grow. Do you know what I mean? I think it's unfair to, or not unfair. I, it's, I think that every band grows. Do you know what I mean? I think um, our influences will start pouring in more on the album when it comes out. 
and I think people will see a, a more um, mature is wrong way, you know, a bit, a bit more of an advanced version of us. And you can only, uh, you know, our peers are always, always going to influence us. And we just hope that we can make something great going forward. Do you know what I mean? Bring in as many influences as we can. What do, and I'm going to wrap this up soon. I'm going to let you go and enjoy the rest of your evening. Um, what do writing sessions look like for you guys? Because as I mentioned, a lot of influences, a lot of stuff going on. Uh, and obviously you've got the keyboards that are such a prominent role. Is it like, let's lay down a synth first and then we'll fit everything else around the synth? Well, initially it started with your basic uh, jam sessions, I guess. Uh, um, Adam... He, uh, our vocalist and guitarist is the the main songwriter, I guess. He always come in with an idea. Um, obviously, being married to Eleanor, they can jam all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, great for us. And they usually come in with a uh, you know an idea, and the vocals, the the guitar, and the keys will be there or thereabouts. And then my, myself and James will get involved with putting the song together. Um, shaping it, you know, get the little nuances going and uh, bring in our, you know, sprinkle on our collective influences and, tr- and then the basic comes out like the ninth is. So uh, that's how it began. I mean, it's, you know, with lockdown, we've started doing a lot more on Pro Tools and that sort of thing. Um, emailing music back and forth and, de- you know, doing house demos. So, I mean, who knows? It maybe it'll change slightly going forward. But I hope we keep that band you know that i always you know i love getting in the room and just jamming on songs i think that's how they grow organically um so hopefully what we will when as soon as we're allowed to safely return to that sort of thing we will and yeah and just see where we go from there at the moment i think we got like 17 demos for an album so hopefully uh early next year we'll try and get the album out and hopefully get back to doing some touring because that's what I love, what we love. Hey, dude, uh, I'm really excited for where this can go, man. Uh, I hope that maybe in 18 months I can grab you on the show again. And I hope and can maybe even foresee that, like, your band life is completely different to it is now, man. Because you've all, like, I had a quick look at your social media following, man. And I think, like, you've got, like, 11,000 uh, combined on Facebook and Twitter already. Uh, which yeah. is, it's a sizable start. And I think you've done a tremendous job in, in building such an audience at, in, while, you, while you're actually during your infancy. Um, and I, dude, I'm really excited for what comes next, man. Um, and like I say, I hope I'll grab you again in around 18 months. And who knows, man, I'm excited about what position you could be in then. And also, I'm often uh, in Cumbran. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, well, I say often. I generally get there like two or three times a year. The actual site owner. Uh, lives there, so we're always no. knocking. We're always usually knocking about in fuel in Cardiff or something, man. So, and I oh, mentioned, really? I, yeah, man, and I mentioned to Luke that the next time that we're in Cardiff, whenever that could possibly be, that we should all yeah. like, we should all like meet up, man, and like share Absolutely. ideas and stuff. So, I, I, I literally live by Cumbran. Pontypool is like next door to Cumbran. Amazing, <laughs> Jackson. Jackson. Jack's going to listen to this show and be like, oh shit, he lives next door to me. <laughs> yeah, no, I really am not far away at all. <laughs> just so that fact, you go- I'm actually looking at moving there, so we'll see, we'll see. We will definitely see, man. Uh, just so that you go, dude, uh, your favourite band of all time and your favourite record? <gasps> um, 
Oh, such a hard question. I have just dropped it on you, man. I'm sorry. Andrews is, oh my God, such a hard question. I'm going to say Blink are my favourite band yeah. overall. I think favourite album, probably I would say Disintegration by The Cure. I'm sticking with it. I'm going with that. I'm sticking Dude. with that. Dude, what a way to end the show, man. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been really cool. Awesome. It's been a pleasure, man. Thank you very much. Take care of yourself, man. Again, I hope I'll speak to you again soon. Take care. All the best, buddy. See you, dude.